Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we have read. I am Cameron. I am Michael. Michael, today we are on the 35th episode. Yeah. Of, uh, it's one shorter three years. Yeah. Mm. 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 Maybe we should, uh, what, do you, <laughs> do you remember the uh, questions email? <laughs> Oh gosh, um, hold, yes, it's uh, I think it's just game studies study buddies at gmail dot com. Um, okay, I'll, I'll see if I can get back into that. <laughs> hmm, seems interesting. <laughs> um, well, uh, you know what? For the anniversary episode for next episode, it's going to be a, a real big one. We'll reveal the book at the end of the episode, of course. But uh, you can go to game study. You can send an email to game studies study buddies at gmail dot com. Uh, if you have any questions, big ideas, big stuff, we'll get to it at the end of that episode, probably. Uh, you can also, if you're a Patreon supporter, you can leave a comment on Patreon uh, on the uh, monthly newsletter, and then we'll uh, we'll address those comments there, or you can just leave one in the Discord. Any of those are fine, but that's not what we're talking about today. Today, well, I guess implicitly we are, because we just <laughs> talked about it. Uh, a bird, here's a, in case anyone can hear it, there's now a bird right outside my window just hooting and hollering. Just oh, that's me, actually. It. Oh, okay. Good to know. Yeah. Uh, getting a little bit of f- feedback in the headphones. <laughs> uh, the, uh, what we're talking about today is a book. It's Open World Empire, Race, Erotics, and the Global Rise of Video Games um, by Christopher B. Patterson. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, um, it brand new, came out in 2020, so not, I guess not brand, didn't just come out, um, but, uh, came out fairly recently for an academic book, this is brand spanking new. Yeah. You know, um, it's a uh, little bitty baby in a bassinet wearing a onesie. Mm-hmm. Hasn't uh, even left the vault yet. Hasn't left the vault yet. It's, uh, it's blearily looking at its parents discerning them barely from the background and the foreground there's a robot raising it mm-hmm. um all that kind of stuff that you would associate with your average everyday normal baby mm-hmm. uh game studies study buddies your one-stop shop for hashtag normal baby <laughs> <laughs> michael you did a little bit of research uh tell us a little bit about uh christopher b patterson uh yeah yeah uh, christopher patterson is currently the assistant professor or an assistant professor in the social justice institute at the university of british columbia um he has a previous book which is transitive cultures anglophone literature of the trans pacific and that came out in 2018 uh in this book it should be mentioned um came from NYU Press uh, in their post-millennial pop series, which is the same press and the same series that published uh, a previous book that we did, uh, Tara Fickle's The Race Card. Um, and I think it's worth pointing that out because I think in in many ways the, these books could be uh, read together as a set. They have a lot of overlapping themes, um, which I think is interesting because they were you know being written in parallel but end up having... Uh, a lot of overlap in terms of how they are thinking through 
uh, race and uh, games and sort of uh, Asian American studies and things like that. Yeah, and broadly, you know, that, that post-millennial pop series, um, and just NYU recently, um, has made a big push with game studies. Um, the uh, uh, How to Play Video Games series, or, uh, you know, big edited volume came out a couple years ago, and then since then, or around that, um, they've done, uh, NYU Press has done this book, uh, The Race Card, Gamer Trouble, Amanda Cody's book, uh, Gaming Sexism, and um, I think uh, the Ruberg book um, on queerness mm-hmm. and games. I'm blanking on the exact title of that book. But, Is it Video uh, Games so Have big... Always Been Queer? Video Games Have Always Been Queer, exactly. Mm-hmm. I knew it was a phrase, and I didn't want didn't to get it wrong, but that, mm-hmm. that is right. So NYU Press has very quickly over the past you know four or five years become a big kind of major player in game studies, especially what we would call, I think, you know, contemporary and, and critical game studies. So game studies that is um, theoretically really, you know, angled. These are not like studies of players necessarily. They're not sociological in nature for the most part. They are not, um, you know, game design textbooks. That, you know, what uh, NYU is putting out looks very different, I think, than what, say, MIT Press puts out. You know, mm-hmm. very different worlds of of thinking about what a game studies book looks like. So, you know, um, they have sales pretty often, you know, a couple times a year. If you, if you want to grab a few of these all in one whack, you can definitely do that. Um, that's my pitch for NYU. I, I forgot to mention I'm now hired by NYU Press mm-hmm. to uh, to pitch their books um, <laughs> everywhere. Um, that's That's not true. That's not real. Standing on boardwalks and calling people over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got a big placard. Mm-hmm. Get your NYU right. press books here. <laughs> that was the that was the saddest little barker you just did. Get, get him, <laughs> get him over here. Uh, well, it's because he's he's at an academic conference. He's got to uh, play the role. <laughs> you know, uh, no comment. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Can you just can you just imagine? I'm we're. Total derail. Yes, I can. can you just imagine, can. right, being at an academic conference in like the book room and having all of those people doing carnival barker acts? You want to talk about the introduction of this book? Yeah. Uh, so the introduction <clears throat> uh, is called Touchy- "Touching Empire and Playing Theory," uh, and this is where Patterson is going to lay out, uh, you know, what what his approach is, like what's going on here, uh, and sort of. The big thing, uh, kind of like the core plank of this book, is uh, the uh, approach or method that it's adopting, uh, which is called erotics, uh, which is not a thing that we've talked about on this show before, I think. Um, we don't tend to be a very erotic show, uh, but erotics... talk about it in every episode, but you make me cut it out. <laughs> Uh, uh, erotics uh, as a method, um, well, the way that Patterson first puts it, uh, and this is just on page one, right, using erotics as a method to, quote, understand games as players do, as mere playthings that afford new passions, pleasures, desires, and attachments that place grave attention on our own positions in the world and make us conscious of power over others. Um, that might need a little bit more contextualization, and we'll definitely elaborate that as we go forward, but sort of, I think, what you need to know dear listener, uh, is that erotics often appears as kind of a uh, alternative to or response to uh, 
well, what what is often called symptomatic reading, or what gets called here after uh, Eve Sedgwick's work, paranoid reading, which is to say critical readings uh, of the of the very famous style. Let's say it's you know uh, a generic Marxian reading, where it's like, oh, you think that this video game or film or piece of art or novel or whatever is. Uh, it's like a narrative with characters and a story that you relate to and it teaches you something about the world. Well, actually, if you notice uh, this feature and this feature and this feature, you'll see that underneath the surface of this relatable story, uh, the, the, the thing is uh, tricking you into thinking like a capitalist, right, and reproducing class relations. Um, and so in some ways, right, there's a way that a lot of, uh, and this is a very vulgar and and broad uh, uh, parody of this type of reading, obviously. Um, but that sort of like reading that essentially assumes the or or asserts in some ways that the interactor or reader or viewer or what have you is kind of being bamboozled by the object uh, and uh, misdirected in some way. Um, whereas erotics is going to show up well, and then the work of critique becomes like, you know, d doing that, the, the demystifying move of being like, well, you think this thing is one thing, but it's actually this other thing, right? You, you think it's one thing, but actually it's teaching you to reproduce uh, capitalist class relations. Um, erotics often appears, at least in my experience, Cameron, you may have like a, a, a different sort of a trajectory for this term. Um, but erotics appears as a kind of a uh, way of saying like, yes, okay, of course, like, <laughs> ideology is happening. Um, but people are nevertheless individuals in the world who have kind of desires and pleasures. And it's worth sort of thinking about uh, what are the the aspects of the object, right? The things that afford uh, the people pleasures or, or, you know, enjoyment, um, that are going to keep them interacting with things that on a certain level they know are, you know, well, to use the modern term problematic, right? Uh, why, why do we continue to play video games? Um, this is the most apposite, uh, thing for, for Patterson's book here. Why do we continue to be video or play video games? Um, when generally speaking, we are well aware of the injustices of uh, video games as they are developed, right, in their labor practices, uh, game consoles and technology as they are materially produced. Um, and this is to say nothing of the, you know, various issues within games uh, as, as representation, right, in terms of the content of games themselves, right? So what is it that we keep coming back for? What are kind of the pleasures that games afford us uh, that keep us plugged into this medium? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, why do we like things that are bad for us mm -hmm. in a broad sense? And, uh, and and Patterson is interested in that from a, you know, as as the, the subtitle of the book might suggest to you, right? Race erotics in the global rise of video games. So so interested in both the transnational, particularly the trans-Pacific relationship here. Um, there's a lot of kind of uh, 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 focus in this book around uh, Asian-ness and what Patterson calls the Asiatic, which is this kind of Western imaginary that kind of collapses all of that into one thing. And then all, all that, by that, I mean that massive geopolitical region. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and race in a broad sense, right? So, so how do, do people negotiate their own identities? And how do they negotiate abstract ideas about race um, uh, through 
this kind of implied uh, or, or um, uh, you know, I don't know, phenomenal experience of erotics, right? And you can hear, this is similar to what you were just saying, Michael, you can hear a little bit of hesitation or a little bit of mm, ah around erotics here because, uh, you know, as you're saying, erotics are... Um, as a methodology or as a kind of a heuristic or a way of looking at the world or asking questions about the world or as a, um, I don't know, concept, notoriously slippery. Mm-hmm. Um, extreme, like, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's a hard thing to, to get your hands around. And what's interesting is that uh, Patterson does the same thing that many people who write about erotics. And, you know, I only have a little bit of a sliver of that, but I do have a sliver of it, right? So Patterson does a similar thing to what everyone else does, which is, kind of defines erotics from the ground up rather than borrowing someone else's definition. Um, For whatever reason, erotics is this kind of thing where um, each scholar who approaches it tends to apprehend that concept a little bit differently and so never directly imports it. And Patterson here is a little bit in conversation with the work of uh, Amber Musser, who if you're interested in kind of um, um, I don't know the trajectory around some of these things. I think the name of her book is, I can look right here. I think it's Sensual Excess. Sensual S. Oh gosh, this is a uh, Winspear <laughs> Hill for say, me. This is <laughs> Sensual Excess. Um, uh, and uh, it's a book that kind of deals with enfleshment and deals with a lot of, um, kind of concepts from contemporary black studies. And it's reading a lot of, um, uh, black art from the past 50 years or so, but is also deeply in conversation with psychoanalysis um, and Deleuzean um, kind of studies of the body. Fascinating book, fascinating um, uh, scholar. Amber Musser's work is uh, deeply, inter- or, you know, deeply interesting. Uh, if you want to check that out, did not realize that, but this is also from NYU Press. So, oh. um, you know, kind of doing it. Her, her book before this, I'm blanking on the name of the, the previous book, but it's also really, really cool. Anyway, um, that is an aside. Uh, but, so, but you know, uh, what Patterson is doing with erotics here is different from maybe two other big paradigms that you might be familiar with around erotics. The one is Audre Lorde's very famous kind of um, set of assertions about what erotics are. For Lorde, and this is the, the thinnest gloss, so please, uh, you know, um, if you want to know more about this, go read about it yourself. Uh, but for Lorde, erotics is a kind of way of apprehending something at the core of womanhood or femininity um, that then gets kind of warped in the world. And there's a, a black feminist politics involved in going to the core of erotics and uh, both accepting that and then kind of fleshing it out um, and recognizing how it works and kind of preserving it within culture. Um, and so there's a kind of, I don't think we would call it essentialist necessarily, but but core, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there is something in the cultural and biological body and, and politicized body that is called erotics that can be tended and nurtured and then brought into community with other people. That's not really how Patterson is using erotics here, right? Patterson is using erotics here to name a relation, to name a something that is afforded or generated between you, uh, you know, a given individual and a game, other people, the culture around you. Um, uh, your feelings about those things. And ultimately, erotics is productive for Patterson, right? It's producing particular kinds of affects mm-hmm. um, that some some of which are good and some of which are bad and some of which are bad that produce good. So we'll, we'll get into that as the book goes on. The other kind of major, um, uh, you know, idea around erotics that I'm familiar with that actually gets cited a little bit here is uh, Georges Bataille, 
George Mattias shows up all across game studies. Fascinating to mm-hmm. me how much George Mattias showed up on the show despite no one really writing a Battalion book on on games. Maybe it's time, mm-hmm. or maybe an essay. But um, but but for Bataille, uh, Erotics also names this kind of. Um, a, a core capability of the human, um, I would say that it's something close to the conscience sublime. You know, Georges Bataille, I don't think, would enjoy that in any kind of way. Um, <laughs> he would object yeah, probably we, pretty strongly. Yeah, but he is uh, he's dead, so I don't have to worry about mm-hmm. it. But it's this kind of, of idea that at the core of the human, there is the capacity to overwhelm or overcome or transcend any kind of cultural barrier around you know, you, whatever the social mores or taboos are, those are explodable. And there are um, ways of achieving that through um, bodily excess, um, forms of literature, um, sex. Mm-hmm. That's that's a big one. Uh, death, uh, you know, quite literally. Bataille's notion, a lot of his philosophical work comes from uh, his partner. Um, uh, um, oh, gosh. Uh Colette Pignon, mm-hmm. I don't know why I was having a problem there. Laurie is that her kind of writer's name. Um, she she dies, I think I've said this on the show before, but she dies um, in his living room. And uh, in her purse, he finds kind of a bundle of papers that uh, have the, the, the core of his philosophy, basically. So he'd been working on this with her for a long time, and they had come to similar ideas, but... Um, uh, you know, his, a lot of his later in life, especially ideas about erotics and excess and what it means to break the social in a broad sense, come out of literally watching a loved one die and then taking her philosophy very seriously that she was kind of tending before her death. And I think there's a little bit of that in the Patterson here, obviously not to that extremity or anything like that, but this idea that erotics are ultimately not responsive or responsible to what we would think of as uh, good social behavior or good mm-hmm. politics. Mm-hmm. And I'm putting those in, in quotation marks here. And uh, that has a lot to do with how Patterson is in conversation with queer theory, um, and particularly the strains of queer theory that Patterson is interested in across this book. So that has a lot to do with the kind of three big figures of queer theory that uh, Patterson is in conversation with the most. I, I wouldn't say these are you know exclusive or any way, but these figures show up across this whole book. And that's uh, the late work of three different people, uh, Michel Foucault, Roland Barthes, and then Eve Sedgwick. Um, and we'll get to those, I guess, in their respective chapters or maybe in some of these chapters, but, um, you know, there's a, there's a movement between erotics and queerness and then how both of those kind of conceptual apparatuses give us the ability to speak to the social in a broad sense. Mm Mm-hmm. I've I've been monologuing for a very long time, Michael. What, anything that I'm missing here? Anything I got wrong? Do you think? Uh, no, no, no. I think just the the third part uh, to mention here because it's probably going to be the bit that we're going to comment on uh, least directly because it's I think it's probably the one that we know the least about is the book the book's relationship to um, like Asian American Pacific Islander and uh, Trans Pacific studies. Um, and this is, again, very similar to Tara Fickle, where that book is making kind of interventions, not only in game studies, but within kind of, uh, you know, this particular field of uh, ethnic literary studies. Um, so, too, is this book trying to make interventions in queer theory, game studies, and uh, like what Patterson, I think, prefers to like where where he's kind of like planting his flag in trans uh, critical trans Pacific studies. Um, and so mm-hmm. sort of the ways that uh, 
you know, sort of in, in, under contemporary uh, neoliberal globalization, uh, what role does Asia as a region play in kind of like the Western imaginary uh, and how is uh, it, that imbricated in all sort of the all these uh, economic and political maneuvers and, and things of that nature. Um, so there are going to be bits where, uh, you know, uh, he is digging into that literature and we'll probably mention it uh, when it's sort of easy for us to to illustrate what we think is happening with regard to the games. Um, but otherwise, that's like these are not stories and books that I have read, so I don't know much about them and I don't have much to comment on other than, you know, how how they how they fit with the parts that I do know. Um, we don't know what an open world empire is, Michael. Um, no, we don't. Well, I mean, isn't that kind of the point? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So so we we started here by giving you erotics, right, which is kind of on literally on page one as, as a kind of core methodology. But, um, you know, you'll notice that's after the colon in the title, mm-hmm. you know, race, erotics, the global rise of video games. But so open world empire implicit in the title and I think in the book as well. Open world empire is the kind of concept or uh, yeah, concept, I guess is the best way of putting it. That kind of uh, drives the bus in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. It's the thing that allows us uh, or allows Patterson to kind of move through the different zones that he's interested in looking at in this book um, and kind of doing that. Um, I would also say, you know, maybe this is the place to put it that, you know, we kind of have two different ways of doing things on this podcast as we figured out, right? The first one is like the world's deepest dive (laughs) where we (laughs) read nearly every page and then talk about it. And sometimes that happens. And we've tended to do that more with the kind of classics of the field just because they are, um, you you know, when you read, um, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, Homo Ludens, right? Mm -hmm. You read that book and you start seeing on every page, like important arguments for the field in some ways, and you you feel like you got to respond to them. Um, You know, this is a very new book. This is not really in the same zone. Uh, I think we both think that it's worth engaging with this book in the field and checking it out. Um, But we're going to do what we kind of do in some of the other episodes where we're going to give you kind of big, broad schematics of these chapters. I think we'll be talking about interesting pressure points that we feel in them and and things that we think are really cool. But this is not going to be a line by line reading of Mm -hmm. this book. Um, we're going to give you the structure of the chapter, what they're about, and then um, leave it to you to, to uh, go read the book because you can do that. Um, it's extremely accessible. And NYU Press books are often 40% off. Uh, use the code Game Study Study. I'm kidding. <laughs> don't, there's, we don't have a code. Um, NYU Press, give us a code. We'll use give it. us a code. Give us a code. That's our new catchphrase for the show. Give us a code. <laughs> Game Study Study Buddies, where they give us a code. Your one-stop shop for giving us a code. <laughs> Remember, <laughs> the social is predicated on giving us a code. <laughs> giving us a discount code. <laughs> uh, open world empire, Michael. Yeah, so the open... I mean, obviously, open world games are a thing. Uh, uh, I think uh, if you don't know what open world games are and you're listening to this show... Do you see that mountain? <laughs> you can go there. Uh, you can go there. And that's actually... Yes, right. That's a great example. So the open world game... As uh, what Patterson sees in the open world game is basically a kind of uh, uh, allegory for the contemporary uh, global political situation, right? Under sort of like contemporary neocolonialism. That is to say, uh, open world games uh, for Patterson uh, model what the world is is like under empire or rather what empire wants you to 
think about the world, which is that this is all kind of an open space, right? Everything is sort of like open to you in in like a fundamental way, right? You see something and you can walk toward it. You can manipulate it. It is there for you to uh, experiment with, um, you know, uh, fuck around with, figure out, use, uh, and figure out what the goals of this place are. What are the things that you can do? And of course, this freedom is always conditioned by like the programming of the game, right? Which is the the thing the things that uh, become sort of the stand-ins for like the logic of empire, right? How how is empire um, acclimating us to seeing the world itself as an open world, right? A world where everything has kind of been uncovered, unlocked, figured out, and now it's just a means of, uh, you know, fiddling around with all the systems of the world until we can get them into the perfect harmony for us to, you know, have all the collectibles or whatever, if this makes any mm-hmm. sense at all, right? Um, but then the... the yeah, it's the... Oh. Continue. Well, just the, the the kind of undergirding thing of that too, right? Is that it's the extension of the liberal world order yes. everywhere, mm-hmm. right? To put what you just said into a different kind of framework, right, right, right. The idea that everyone, like you know, there is no society. Um, individuals are atoms, uh, sort of bouncing around. Uh, and then what Patterson says, uh, the, the sort of the the, the complement to this, right? The, the the other sort of important thing that empire is not going to acknowledge or avow is that in the freedom of the open world, uh, you often end up having a lot of space for perversity, right? It's it's like, the on the one hand, it's like the freedom to self-optimize, right? That's the neoliberal injunction, like, everything is open to you, you have all the resources, if only you can get out and do it, right? If you can get out and do the thing, if you can do the work, find the stuff mm-hmm. you need, you will self-optimize. Uh, so, so think about, you know, just to give people examples of what self-optimization looks like, Think about when the pandemic began and you saw lots of tweets. I saw lots of tweets that said something to the effect of you've never had more time in your life to work on your passion project for your small business. Mm-hmm. What, if you don't do it now, you never will. Right. And so so that is the, this kind of uh, gaming you to be an individual in some ways. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the social is abolished in all kinds of ways. You have nothing but time to uh, to optimize the self and your way of engaging with the world, and the world is only markets. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's and when we say liberalism earlier and neoliberalism, like uh, Michael uh, used a minute ago, that's not liberal and conservative, right? That's not um, you know political parties. That's the philosophy of liberalism, right? Mm-hmm. So individualism, property rights, all these kinds of things. You could you can read about it if you would like to. But so not to interrupt. I just wanted to give a, a you know that's I think a sharp and contemporary example of the exact kind of logic that's being um, analyzed here. Right, and <clears throat> you know a, a good complementary example to follow up on what would Patterson's next point be, um, which is that. Though this is sort of the logic of the open world empire or the open world video game, what actually happens in, say, Skyrim, where I can see that mountain and go there, uh, I'm going to, instead of self-optimizing and doing sort of like all the best things that I can do, I am going to like murder an entire village to see if I can do it, right? Uh, and like that's what players do. That's that's sort of like what happens in these types of games is uh, this 
this uh, freedom to self-improve often ends up uh, revealing a kind of strange perversity that undercuts the utopian rhetoric of the uh, the open world, uh, the neoliberal kind of self self-optimization uh, uh, narrative. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the pandemic example, uh, you can work on your passion project for your small business now that you, we have all the time in the world. And actually what happens is like everyone just, I don't know, gets depressed and streams the office or something. I, I People weren't even doing that. I mean, the, the, the I mean, the, this is, I think, you know, this is a, a crude example, but it is one that's very illustrative. Um, the freedom of, uh, you know, uh, globalization, right? And the freedom of like the absolute neoliberalization of everything on the planet uh, is the freedom to be a CEO or to masturbate. Mm-hmm. Right. And like anything you want to do. Yep. Right. Anything that is uh, quote unquote productive or non-productive. Those are, those are all game. Um, and that un- is undergirded, right. By uh, we, we get actually on page two, um, a pretty interesting kind of, additional ethical um, uh, dimension to it, right? So Patterson says that the open world empire, all those things that Michael just said, right? You know, it's coming with all of these kinds of assumptions about the self and how, what one can do, right? Uh, Good things, bad things, whatever, right? It's the freedom to do whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But also uh, it is predicated on the kind of ordering of that, of that world, right? Of setting up uh, convenient power relations, Mm -hmm that are predictable, whatever, right? So it's kind of the state backing the market in that way. Um, And so Patterson says it's, quote, the contemporary empire of information technology, drone warfare, permanent war, and massacres that occur with little scandal or protest. So it's also, it's not just like this freedom, you know, society-less capitalism smoothly running. It is that very, it, it creates a stability that cannot be interrupted mm-hmm. in many ways, right? You know, and, and in some ways, this is a the flip side of the end of history argument, right? Mm-hmm. The, the Francis Fukuyama argument that, um, you know, 9-11 really threw a wrench into. Um, and it's also a version of what Deleuze and Guattari called uh, genocidal total pieces, uh, which I've, I've always found to be a, a pretty direct way of, of uh, addressing this, which is that once uh, everything is kind of bracketed into market relations worldwide, it has a kind of openness to it, right? Because Patterson says the open world, the open of the open world empire is the open of open markets too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, or, or I'm sorry, of open for business. That's the, the correct thing. Um, but, uh, but within that, right, it, it would take something truly cataclysmic to truly interrupt it. And so, for example, drone bombings or, um, you know, uh, massive military operations can happen just as part of day-to-day activity within the open world empire. It never interrupts the operations of the empire itself. Mm -hmm. Very similar here. I would say many of these, these qualities, very similar to McKinsey Works game space. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if you're thinking about analogs or other ways of addressing this or other ways of thinking this or, um, you know, uh, rhyming theoretical modes in some ways, I think Open World Empire has a lot to say to and, and is in conversation with um, game space, although McKinsey work is not cited in this book as far as I could tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so I mean, that's that's kind of the introduction that gets us uh, the groundwork for everything that's going to follow from this. Um, and just a couple of quotes, I mean, to maybe tie it off, right? Um, This is from 33. If empire today is shaped through the developments and circuits of information technology, 
Video games are the open world empire screaming through the language of play. To hear these screams, we must no longer make ourselves transparent, identity-based beings. And we'll unpack uh, some of that when we talk about the rest of the book. Um, but then this other quote that I think is important, it's the same page. Erotics does not evade empire by focusing on the body, but through the body, it makes empire's presence palpable. Um, and I think that's a good preview for uh, later on the chapter that talks about actual open world games most explicitly, um, I think makes a, a, a kind of good point for for that when we talk about we're going to talk about Far Cry later. Um, did you have anything else you mm -hmm. wanted to say or do you want to talk about uh, chapter one? I, I guess the the other thing to say here, like we said, that you know this book is deeply in conversation with queer theory. Although we we will get more into that um, as as we go along here. But the other thing I would say is that this book kind of sees itself, or Patterson positions it as a kind of corrective to other forms of queer theory that ap appear in game studies. Mm. Um, uh, this is on page 19. This is a little bit of a long quote, but uh, I think it's uh, useful here. In 2018 and 2019, queer game studies discourse grew with the first ever issue of game studies devoted to queerness and game studies, and with books by Bonnie Ruberg, Christopher A. Paul, and Megan Condis focusing on queer forms of play as an alternative to toxic masculinity of some hyper-visible gaming cultures. Toxic masculinity here is in quotation marks and some is italicized, just letting everybody know. And it's got a hefty footnote associated with it, too. Um, this emerging discourse has been crucial for perceiving multiple gaming cultures who relate to games in alternative, perhaps erotic ways. Yet, thus far, many queer gaming scholars have also reproduced the bare limitations of queer studies, what Jose Esteban Munoz has described as an, as quote, as an, sorry, an anti-relational, that's in quotation marks, approach that treats sexuality as, quote, a singular trope of difference, end quote, in which Sean John Reddy uh, echoes when he uh, observes that for many queer studies scholars, sexuality, quote, names the normative frames that organize our disciplinary and interdisciplinary inquiries into our past and into contemporary racial capitalism, end quote. Indeed, in recentering the field of game studies from Asia and Europe to the American academic landscape where queer theory has remained most grounded, entire analyses of Japanese games now have little to no recognition of their multiple audiences or of Japanese aesthetic design, instead relying upon American paradigms of gender and sexuality to treat a Japanese product. Furthermore, queer game studies has continued to practice a pronounced indifference to the process of game manufacture and the labor regimes involved in its production, seeing games as commodities to be reread by American consumers in queer ways. This absence of transnational labor regimes and universalizing of an American-centric gaze onto Asian products, which can broach into queer Orientalism, is not inherent to queer theory as Bart, Butler, Sedgwick, Foucault, Warner, Berlant, uh, Mana Lanson, sorry, I, I, that's another Windspear Hills for me, <laughs> Hills, I have a hard time, whatever it is, like multiple vowel sounds for me are hard, Mana Lanson, and Munoz, the list goes on, were and continue to be highly invested in transnational and capitalist dimensions of race, class, and sexuality. In video games, as a, in video games, a relational view view of queerness remains of crucial importance as its labor and creative processes are made possible through transpacific routes. So sorry, that's like most of a page that I read. But I actually think that's really important for this book, and it, I don't think it surfaces nearly this clearly throughout the rest of the book. Mm. Which is to say that that Patterson is saying that um, game study queer that queer game studies in a broad sense is. Uh, too focused on queer readings of things and not about queer relationality and how that kind of moves throughout the production process, our relationships with games, and in fact is regionally and culturally based, right? There, there, for Patterson here, there is not a universal queerness of games, 
right? There, you know, it has to emerge um, out of the recognition of the culture where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that this kind of claim actually runs into some of the other claims made in the book. I think there are places in this book where I where I have an issue of figuring out exactly which of two slightly different uh, heuristics I'm supposed to be identifying with. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think that's important you know, that, that this, this book sees itself building a new part of queer game studies that perhaps has been underdeveloped in the field already. Well, and I think that's a that's a great actually uh, transition point into the first chapter, because I think that, as you say, that surfaces very clearly this claim. And then we can see how that claim works out in an argument in this first chapter that is, uh, in large part, a kind of attempt to take Overwatch uh, very seriously as a what uh, Patterson calls a global game and to mm-hmm. and and. Obviously, uh, if you're not familiar with Overwatch, uh, it's a team-based shooter um, with uh, characters, like it's a character team-based shooter, Um, and there is a huge fandom, a very involved and active fandom, that is interested in, like, the narratives of these characters, these particular heroes, Uh, you know, who are they, where are they from, what are their identities, their nationalities, their backstories, Uh, you know, does, you know, uh, 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 Tracer, who is kind of like one of the flagship characters, right, uh, was uh, revealed to have a girlfriend at one point, right, and that was kind of a a big moment. Um, All of these moments of kind of representation, uh, and Patterson is going to take Overwatch and sort of just bracket a lot of that stuff talking about actual representation in terms of content and think like, well, how do we, how can like queer players relate to these characters in ways that is indicative of, a, of queerness um, outside of like whether or not uh, whenever, whether or not this character in the lore has a girlfriend. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. Uh, what's a global game, Cameron? <laughs> Well, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I'm a little bit unclear on what a global game is. Um, I, I, you know, I can say in a broad sense that that it, it's a game that. Um, I, 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 is this the chapter where where odorless shows up again uh-huh. for the first time? So we've already talked about this. I think a couple times in the show this this notion of uh, odorless production. Uh, this idea, you know, we talked about it for the most part, I think, in uh, the race card, right, around Pokemon. Mm-hmm. Pokemon is kind of built for globalization. I'm forgetting what her key term was for that. Glo- globalization. Yes, it was. <laughs> there we go. Uh, it, it, it is already ready to do it. It's, it so it is a kind of um, uh, uh, cultural product that's ready to go in some ways. And so um, global games here, I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Michael, but they they are packaged for that already. Mm-hmm. They are packaged to move to be quote unquote representative or landable in many different places. Um, and then they also, because of that, produce uh, weird context, like the very beginning of this chapter, where um, Patterson relates the story about playing Overwatch, and then a Korean player, or at least a player who has their name as a bunch of Korean characters. Um, uh, calls Patterson a fucking American. Mm-hmm. And Patterson has this like weird, you know, moment of like, you, you know, um, doesn't use this word, but like interpolation, right? Of like, <laughs> w- what, where does this locate me? Like in the social order, right? Because, you, you know, uh, Patterson kind of goes through his background a little bit in a couple places in this book, has Filipino heritage, has Chinese heritage, 
uh, is Asian American. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, it's this weird kind of thing of being labeled a fucking American has this, this odd effect. And he might be um, at the time of this anecdote, he might be teaching in Hong Kong or something. This is the other thing about Patterson yeah. is that he, I didn't mention this in the bio, but he has taught in Asia at Asian institutions. So he's kind of international, um, in, in that regard or trans Pacific at least. <laughs> yeah. Well, trans Pacific in his uh, work history is mm-hmm. certainly here. Right. Because, uh, um, the, uh, yeah, that's something maybe we didn't mention in the intro. The intro has a, a paragraph or maybe even a little bit more about the conditions of production for this book, which I think is great. I think everyone should write a little paragraph about that in their book. But, uh, you know, Patterson basically says there were seven years between finishing his PhD and finishing this book, I think. Um, and that has taken him to several different institutions in, um, in Hong Kong in particular, um, bouncing back and forth, postdocs, uh, it seems like research positions. And now I think, uh, you know, landed in a tenure track job. So, um, you know, there's this kind of movability of uh, Patterson as a human being, right, mm-hmm. uh, across this same kind of trans-Pacific region uh, that mirrors the kind of argument being made uh, here, right? So the the way that this argument gets grounded and the way that Patterson talks about his relationship to these arguments is, you know, kind of mirrored there. Um, yeah, I, but just to say, I, I think that's a great paragraph. I think people should write about what they had to do to get a book done mm-hmm. because those things are shocking. And uh, academia, um, if you have even the smallest amount of contact with it is a deeply exploitative and difficult institution to work through. So um, it's always appreciated. But exactly as you're saying, I, I don't remember in this anecdote one way or the other where Patterson was located um, while playing this game. But being called a fucking American uh, was uh, this weird kind of distal moment. And uh, ultimately, Patterson takes it as a racial remark, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so that's sort of, you know, the that's the other thing about the the global game is that it's not only a game where, as you say, like like Overwatch to talk about when he gets into his reading of Overwatch, he's not just looking at uh, here. I booted up Overwatch and I played May with or like her normal English voice lines. He gets into the fact that uh, Blizzard goes through the trouble of recording uh, different voice lines in different languages for different markets, right? And that, like you know, Chinese. Uh, there, there's like a. Uh, uh, um, two different, uh, you know, uh, versions of like May's Chinese voice track, for instance, and this is reflective of real world political and economic and social uh, differences and tensions uh, within these various demographics. And so the the thing about the global game is not just that it is trying to uh, land in as many places as possible, but it is also putting all of those places into a kind of weird form of contact, um, mm-hmm. like bringing people yeah. together in ways that, in, you know, uh, the, the, the old, you know, going back to, to like Lisa Nakamura, right? She's talking about kind of the utopian rhetoric of, of uh, tech advertisements uh, in that moment, right? Of, of bringing the world together. Um, here we see the world getting brought together and people are, you know, yelling at each other and, and, you know, shouting slurs or like denigrating each other for their ethnicities or nationalities or what have you. Um, so it's exactly the type of thing that Patterson is interested in, where on the one hand, we have the promise of the open world empire and then sort of the unhappiness the the negative affects uh the adversities that actually can uh result and bubble up to the surface and that end up conditioning a great part of our experience in these places 
Mm-hmm. And uh, that conditioning, right, or that kind of, you know, it's it, it, exactly what we're talking about in the intro, this kind of double relationship of what happens here with, within, uh, you know, open world empire as a big concept and then the global game as a kind of version of that or, or kind of place where we can see it is that Patterson then goes on to make this argument that it gives us a different relationship to race, particularly producing race as camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and so camp, if uh, I think notes on camp, the Sontag is, is the, the piece that is being um, uh, kind of brought here. It's really interesting that, that eight years or so ago, uh, seven, eight years ago, a lot of people in game studies were talking about camp. Like a lot of people were talking about camp. And that has gone away for the most part. And I don't know what to do with that. Hmm. Um, uh, And and weirdly enough, a lot of that never got published. Like I I saw several conference presentations. I saw a lot of talk about it on Twitter. It was like the, the, you know, a thing for especially Australian scholars for whatever reason. Um, And then it just kind of poof. I don't know what happened. But anyway, that's that's a a weird aside. Um, But this is on page 41. Um, this is like the kind of defensive using camp, um, or, or the reason we should think racist camp here. Uh, Patterson says, quote, the queer sensibility of camp provides a method to comprehend racial forms in games where one does not inhabit a racial other. Mm-hmm. And so Patterson, you know, very much a non-essentialist, I would say, um, very much a wide ranging theorist when it comes to race. Meaning that that Patterson doesn't think that there are uh, ontological qualities to race. I don't think uh, Patterson doesn't think that race is a um, like an overall determinant in many ways. Uh, race can be played with. Mm-hmm. Race has variable forms to it. Race is a kind of series of rules, and like all rules, can be broken and manipulated and augmented in different ways. Um, I think that this chapter, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but but kind of goes against uh, the grain uh, around the way we think race for the most part. And I think Patterson knows that mm-hmm. um, and and comes to this kind of term or concept that's going to follow through through the rest of the book of the Asiatic yes. uh, here, which is a kind of imaginary of Asian-ness, this kind of projection of the quality of Asian-ness or... or um, the the beingness of Asianness, and that's this is quote. This is also in forty one. Uh, the Asiatic is quote a non exclusive and non essential racial form understood through sets of forms, rules, and styles that reimagine racial boundaries and categories. All right, so the Asiatic is um, a kind of racial format, right? What 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 maybe from my corner of philosophy in the world might call a diagram here, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's a way of ordering the the world, or a way that the world gets ordered, I should say, um, that has uh, particular modes associated with it, but those things can be manipulated, augmented, whatever. It's inhabited sometimes by people and thrown off uh, in other moments. Um, I, I, don't, I don't really know uh, where, where to go from here in that sense, because, uh, you know, this is kind of an argument, I think, that you either buy or you don't. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there is uh, uh, that, that one can be uh, lukewarm on the idea of both the racist, uh, racist camp here and the Asiatic in a broad sense, because it kind of requires you to absorb a whole philosophical system of race alongside with it. That's not really being uh, surfaced here, but is implicit, which is that you know race is a semiotics, ultimately, at the end of the day. 
It is about signs and symbols uh, moving, being uh, inhabited by people at certain moments and thrown off in the next. And I think that there's a lot of uh, work on race in a broad sense, particularly in black studies in the United States, that would say that race does not necessarily work this way. Um, It's not something to be taken on and pulled off. It's not something that can kind of be uh, the product of camp in these ways, or certainly not in the way that Patterson might be suggesting um, that it can easily be brought on and off. So to to give an example of this, what I mean by this kind of, I I think, take it or leave it uh, approach here, right? So um, Patterson writes about Dalsim here, the the character from Street Fighter, who has been talked about for a very long time um, as a uh, brutal stereotype of an Indian man, right? So he has he has bug eyes, he stretches. Um, he has these kind of over-exaggerated, over-animated um, maneuvers. Um, people have critiqued Dalsim for a very long time. Mm-hmm. I don't think I was aware of of uh, the character of Dalsim, not a Street Fighter person. Uh, I don't think I was aware of the character before I, I uh, encountered the critique, I would say. And so um, the, the, the conversation, I think, as far as the, uh, a uh, racial and political conversation around Dalsim would kind of end there in certain um, uh, quarters, right? Mm-hmm. Bad representation, can't do anything else with it. Maybe we should get rid of him from the game, right? Or, or re-articulate him, change him, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, Patterson says, well, look, we just have to change the way that we think about Dalsim or that the Asiatic as a, as a concept and the way that um, uh, this game foregrounds queerness and thinking through queerness and racialized play, race as camp, race as play, um, the way that, that this book foregrounds that means that we can approach Dalsim from a different angle, um, that he is a queer representational figure, that he is exaggerations um, that are put on and then taken off. We don't think that Dalsim is a real Indian human being, mm-hmm. right? Like that's not in the, the, no one thinks that. And so because of that, we can have a different orientation toward the way that Dalsim works representationally that is that looks to the way that Street Fighter 2 uh, uses its kind of caricatures of race in order to also be a type of global game. Um, so that it's not just good representations and bad representations in this thing. It is that it is a kind of campy assertion about the uh, the the kind of multi-ethnic world that we live in that everyone can kind of engage with in perhaps less serious ways. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of like a, a, an argument you either buy or you don't. I think that there, there's probably very little gradation in there for, for, for if you heard me say that, and you know, you're welcome to read, obviously, where I'm glossing a little bit of some of the intricacies of this argument. But um, if you heard me say that and you had a gut check of, I don't know if I think that is true, I think there's probably very little to convince you that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a really weird moment here. I just have to say it as a film studies person that uh, Patterson says that games are different from cinema here. And I think there's a long history of exploitation cinema and exploitation cinema that was made for a non-white audience, um, particularly around race issues in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, that would say that cinema is actually very similar to games in this regard. Um, but, you know, I got to hold it down for film studies. Yeah. So to kind of read this the other way, right? So what, what what does this kind of maneuvering by Patterson, right? What are, what are kind of, if you um, take this argument 
what else can you do with it? And one of the things that I think up ends up being um, really interesting uh, is this idea that Patterson has that, like, uh, in Overwatch, for instance, uh, he talks about uh, the characters he mains, uh, May and Zarya. And uh, he talks about how, and this is, you know, again, what erotics buys you when you think about, like, well, what are, when, when Patterson sort of steps back and thinks, like, what are my attachments to these characters? Why it, why is sort of this happening? Um, there is uh, the connection with May along the, the lines of her being, um, you know, Asian, uh, Patterson having Asian heritage, and uh, kind of uh, you know, where he's living and working, like he he talks about or working in Hong Kong and uh, trying to learn to speak Chinese and listening to May's voice lines and things of that nature and kind of the stuff that has nothing to do with the actual play of the game and all to do with kind of like the affiliation with the character. Um, mm -hmm. But sort of similar to that, right, he also mains Zarya, who is a very different character. She uh, is, I think, she's supposed to be Russian, I think, in, in the lore. Mm -hmm. And she's like a massive, like, well-muscled woman um, with, I think, bright, bright pink hair or something, which is... a just not at all, right, in terms, if we're thinking in terms of representation, uh, not at all uh, sort of uh, aligned with May, who is small and kind of uh, presented as, you know, cute, and uh, uh, she's got, like, you know, big old glasses. She's like an engineer, right? She's, she's a, a like, in, if we think of these as uh, cartoon characters, because they are, and in fact, one of the things mm -hmm. that I think um, Patterson does that's it's really cool is he says that these heroes... Uh, when we talk about them as like, what type of representation are they? Uh, one of the things that we sort of miss out is that these hero characters are not really characters so much as they are like what he calls the personages of pornography, which mm -hmm. is to say they are uh, the ideas of a certain type of person more than they are intended to be like psychologically full and complex characters, right? It's supposed to be uh, sort of the outline of a person that allows the player to kind of project forward and like fill in all of these blanks and form that kind of uh, uh, emotional attachment to them, right? And so uh, when we think about Race's Camp, um, when we, uh, and obviously this is folding in gender as camp and, and sexuality as camp as well, because Zarya is uh, uh, widely understood in terms of how she is designed to be queer coded. Uh, and I think also maybe is she, I, I'm not an Overwatch person. She might be like canonically queer now, uh, whatever. It's it's very funny to me every time we're talking, because you're like, oh, you know, it's like Zarya. She's like Russian. I, is she muscled? I don't know. Does she have pink hair? It, but I, it all, it, every single one of these feels like you're going to be like, and I guess she's like, I don't know, six, two, and I guess 31 years old. <laughs> it really feels like you're, you're, you're afraid of revealing too much overwatch information here. Well, I just, I, 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 I have to hesitate because I don't know these characters. I don't play these games. Mm -hmm. Like everything, everything I know about overwatch, I absorb through the fandom, which has mm -hmm. a, a very specific, like, in some ways, right, uh, Patterson is orienting himself against the fandom uh, by mm -hmm, making yeah. these, because I think most of the conversations I hear about or through uh, uh, what my observations of Overwatch fandom on Twitter or whatever um, are about these issues of representation. And like, to be clear, uh, 
Blizzard has some real issues with representation and Overwatch specifically has some real issues. And I uh, one other thing that I think is worth sort of pointing out is that some of these don't get discussed here. And I think in particular, like uh, uh, the way that Blizzard and Overwatch um, specifically have tended to represent blackness or interface with blackness. Uh, and yep. um, I can't remember which character it was who got like a native american bonus skin or something but the character herself yeah, yeah and but the character yeah. herself was not native or like then they were like well actually here's some new lore that says she's like i don't know half cherokee or something yeah, basically yeah. yeah i don't know if that's the exact orientation but that that's the kind of like like a post hoc mm -hmm. revision of the character to make the skin okay basically right is how that was broadly read i don't know yeah one way or the other but uh, uh anyway right um so, so that stuff does not come up. But also one of the things that I, I think is important here, what Patterson is saying is like, you know, when when he plays Zarya, he is not sort of like I am inhabiting for real the I don't know, six foot two, like highly muscled Russian woman with pink hair. Right. That's not sort of his orientation with uh, toward the game. That's not his relationship to that character. But there's something about um, the the I mean, you know, the the uh, the performance of queerness that that character affords right and sort of like the gender trouble of uh playing her and like her design how that gives gives him some kind of uh frisson or or uh that forms right some sort of uh pleasurable attachment for him in maining these characters who are very very different but reflect in indirect and direct ways aspects of his own identity uh, if that makes sense. And so mm -hmm. then the Asiatic, right, is this kind of uh, ways that it, it comes to name the ways that games foreground kind of these knowledge gaps uh, where you can have like a new form of attachment, right? Like it's probably safe to say that prior to playing Overwatch and, and seeing Zarya, like Christopher Patterson was never like, hmm. Like, I think I identify with an extremely tall, muscular Russian woman with pink hair, right? Uh, it is precisely mm -hmm. in, like, the encounter with this character that he finds a new mode of kind of recognizing aspects of himself or his own queerness, right? Um, and so, yeah, that's that's sort of what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you, you pulled this... Um uh, from the end and the end of the chapter as I guess interesting here right this is a quote you pulled that quote video games do not produce racial attitudes so much as staged playful engagements with race that risk injury but they can also offer transformative ways of perceiving racial realities mm -hmm. uh, right so so it's it's both things right uh, you know games can both be um, producing racial representations and racial situations that are um, brutal damning formally bad re re-inhabiting and reasserting the same um you know uh cultural values that we live in that are racist that kind of thing but also it opens up a gap at the same place in the same time that can be uh you know transformative quite literally um for understanding those things and uh, you know if you're interested in, in the blow by blow the way this argument moves i think that that it's important to read the chapter to to see how that happens but that's the the broad version of the claim um, and at the very end, kind of Patterson returns to that anecdote that begins about this being called an American and says, actually, that's what makes the game pleasurable, um, that, that there's this weird affect. And this is erotic showing up again, right? 
it doesn't fit within clearly delineated emotions, right? Of like good feelings and bad feelings. Mm -hmm. It's that that person, um, you know, making a, what Patterson's calling a racial remark of American here, that is a bad feeling. But then when Patterson's able to, uh, you know, may ice block and then, you know, kill this person, you know, freeze them and then kill this person. There is a joy to that. And it, that is what makes the game pleasurable. And then Patterson says, you know, even in an additional move that he ended up feeling kind of a, a weird, uh, like alliance with this person because they're kind of bonded in this, this scenario in this moment, mm -hmm. you know, and that's not a feeling that clearly is delineated or, or, um, you know, that there's not a tweet form of that feeling. Right. Right. You know, that that doesn't fit within, I think, the he uses this word from from Bart later in the book, but the doxa, right? The the kind of set of opinions um, that are widely shared um, around racial remarks and games. Um, you know, I'm thinking here also of the kind of celebratory feeling I saw around that T-Pain clip recently. Did you, did you see that? <laughs> I did that? not see this, no. So I'm interested in, I, I saw you mention it in your notes. So I want to know more about this. Yes. So T-Pain has been uh, uh, streaming Call of Duty recently. I guess he's been streaming a lot, but this is him streaming Call of Duty and someone in the lobby is um, saying the N-word just repeatedly to him, right? And so then uh, T-Pain uh, gets, you know, gets in the game and absolutely annihilates this person <laughs> right um just just destroys this team right and he's like screaming the whole time and there's like clearly a lot of um you know joy in doing this right and like getting revenge here and of making it clear that like you know that not only this is uncalled for right but but that the game provides an opportunity to speak back to this in a much more visceral way right than, than mere language right mm -hmm. Um, there's something going on here. And, you know, I saw it retweeted by Kashana Gray, you know, shout out to Kashana Gray, Intersectional Tech, which is dealing with a lot of these kinds of things, I think. You can go back and listen to that episode um, if you want to check that out. It ended up being on Jesus and Marrow um, and them kind of talking about it, too. And everyone, uh, you know, or, or not everyone, but the, the people I saw talking about it the most were black Americans. And they were saying that, you know, this is both a common occurrence and that the emotions that T-Pain is engaging with are realistic ones, right? That this is something that that matters and is important and is afforded by the game. And it's it, like, obviously, no one, no one would want that initial setup to happen, right? Mm -hmm. Like, no one wants to be in a lobby and being called racial slurs. I, I don't, I don't think. Um, but within that context, the game provides a very complicated kind of uh, capability to respond that that is powerful and real, mm -hmm. right? You know, there there's a I think it's hard to watch that clip and not think that there's something socially real happening there. And that's what Patterson's trying to get at too, right? Mm -hmm. What are what are the methods that allow us to talk about that in serious ways, right? And 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 ascertain it. Erotics is one of those ways. So that's a long example to talk about and thing uh, to get there. But I think that that um, you know it's something you can go watch the clip if you want to. Um, it's quite quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, so the second cha uh, chapter is called Ludophile Author Author Autour Asian. Is this your Winspear yeah. Hill? Author Autour Author Autour. Mm -hmm. Autour Allura Allura. The had oddly shaped feet. <laughs> uh, but yeah. So this this chapter is about. Um, Moving kind of like from the context of, of like the big global game specifically to uh, who are the figures that produce games uh, and how are they talked about? How are they thought about? Um, and then how does how do how do games get 
approached as uh, kind of indicative of some sort of truth about an uh, a designer or developer's identity? Um, and what are the shortcomings in traditional ways of doing that? Um, so there are three kind of figures that are going to get talked about in this chapter, uh, three types of uh, developers. Um, one is, uh, and these are direct quotes, I, this is from page 79. One is the invisible American, um, historically situated within kind of the, you know, uh, Atari days, but, you know, the the those practices are, are not entirely gone. Uh, and then there is sort of the Japanese auteur um, and then the Asian North American developer. Um, and, and sort of how, when, when we approach games by these particular types of developers, uh, who is reading for race? Like what sorts of things are people seeing when they're reading for race? Uh, and mm -hmm. who, where, where do we don't look for race where we might actually find it and find something productive is, is another question that, uh, is, is sort of animating this chapter. Um, but the other thing that's really big here is the figure of the ludophile, uh, that is Ludo like, you know, game, file, uh, you know, lover. So the, the, the game lover, ludophile. Uh, Cameron, do you have a, have a quick and easy way for telling us what the ludophile is uh, as it grows out of the term cinephile, which I think you might have some opinions on? Yeah, cinephiles are big, weird nerds. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, cinephiles, are, you know, that, that largely uh, emerges in France in the post-war period. People who are uh, film fans, right? So the, the big maneuver that happens is that uh, France in the post-war period ends up getting a huge import. I think I've talked about this on the show, right? They, they get huge imports of uh, American cinema, and so they're watching huge amounts of cinema. The French film industry is being built, right, out of... Um, you know, the kind of post-war recovery that's going on after World War II. And so these things run into each other where we eventually get some things like the French New Wave. Mm -hmm. Entertainment products be flooding the world from the United States. Um, you know, everything that was made in the during the war and in the pre-war period now is just available for exports, a new market. It's a very, uh, you know, capitalistic kind of moment. But it creates uh, movements that are in response to that, and it creates movements that are borrowing from it heavily and things like that. Um, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The auteurs come up here too, I guess. Um, but, but we can talk about that in just a second. Um, I'm a little bit, uh, hesitant to, I, I think, I think the broad strokes of this, this chapter are really interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm a little bit confused about the specifics here. I, I'll be honest with you because these three kind of figures, like, I think the Japanese auteur argument is 100% correct. There is a weird kind of, um, fetishization, but also um, uh, fixation, right? On the jet, specifically the Japanese games auteur, mm -hmm. right? Like, like I, I'm so glad that someone has d dug deeply into how that imaginary works. And also, I think there's something really interesting going on here um, with the the kind of Asian North American, um, where it's uh, game developers who are of Asian descent, but are disavowing that in some ways, or just not commenting on it, I think is more common here. Right. A good example of that is he talks about Gooseman, uh, who created Counter-Strike, right? Uh, who, uh, like, and, and no one, no one goes to, and his point is kind of like, no one goes to Counter-Strike and reads that as like, uh, a, a a game by an Asian American developer, right, or whatever, right? Yeah. No one is no one is approaching Counter Strike and looking for uh like ethnic truth of the Asian American experience. Um, if anything, mm -hmm. they're approaching it and they're like, oh, this is you know the Imperial War Machine. Uh, uh, I don't know, you know, 
a 14 year old like homophobic cis white kids yelling at each other whatever um but in fact right if you kind of like trouble that like you you get this uh uh uneasy sort of you know question of like well how does kind of the the way in which we like Asianness does not get brought into play there, right? The way in which it can be kind of just bounced out of the question or out of the equation. Um, and, and you know, what do we do with that sort of thing? So I just think that's really interesting, right? Like, wh why is it, yeah, this is sort of a, another version of this question that he kind of gets at. It's like, you know, why uh, is it that we don't talk about Spelunky um, as, you know, some uh, in relation to like Derek Yu's uh, Asian heritage and mm -hmm. things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Right. It, it has this kind of Indiana Jones aesthetic to it, this adventurer aesthetic to it, um, which, you know, gets interpreted through that lens entirely. Right. And not through any kind of, uh, you know, as you're saying, racial or, or kind of ethnic position. And, and you get a sense here that that Patterson's just trying to trouble that. Right. If, if we are always looking for racial truth at the end of the rainbow. Right. If we if we can always trace the 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 racial reality of the piece of art back to the identity of the person then why does that not happen all the time in video games mm -hmm. right this this is another place where i think that that bringing in some some um I, you know work from black studies would be very helpful this is the same question that gets raised in the early 2000s around post black art um you know uh, black artists at the time and, and still now um, feel pressured in order to to make art that it has to be around identity. And certainly that is privileged in certainly white art spaces um, in the U.S. You know, there's this idea that that racialized people have to bring a racialized perspective in their art. And that's what it has to, to deal with. Right. So. Um, uh, you know, you end up with people like Glenn Ligon trying to work through what that means and, and responding to that um, in very direct ways. You know, you can read something like Darby English's The the Work of Art, How to See the Work of Art in Total Darkness, I believe is the title, um, in order to kind of read how that works out, right? But but there, so there is this kind of question, a live question after the year 2000 or so, really heavily in the art space of, of where where is the racial truth of art that gets racialized by systems and and none of that's really um shows up here i don't think that's necessarily a problem because that's not what patterson is interested in looking to here but if you as a listener are interested in checking out more of this kind of question there are other people in other disciplines who have um you know engaged with that but but the thing to go back to is that i'm just not quite sure that i that the invisible american i'm not sure that i agree with patterson that the invisible american is as invisible as um as we like to believe mm -hmm. um it, it meaning that you know i've read a lot of analysis of john romero as a person mm -hmm. and as a racialized person um who then uh, who that then reads the content of doom right through that particular thing um and there are lots of different moments in in history you know particularly activision gets brought up here as kind of a crediting um issue but but the reason that that activision exists as a company is that they wanted to be credited you know and so um patterson kind of presents activision as kind of an anomaly in early game development early console game development because they actually highlighted their their uh, developers 
But that was their whole reason for existing, was to highlight their developers, right? Mm-hmm. Precisely to be non-invisible, to be visible um, in response to, as you're saying, Atari, um, you know, getting rid of credits. You know, Warren Robinette puts it into Adventure as kind of one of the first Easter eggs, that kind of thing. Um, and, and, you know, it's it's hard to think about, um, you know, certainly contemporary game development, right? Uh, you know, Patterson does a really good job, I think, of walking through people like Sid Meier and how the Sid Meier brand name is more of a brand name than visibility. But, you know, um, uh, uh, Neil Druckmann, I, I, maybe this is evidence here. I was having a hard time <laughs> pulling the name. But, like, uh, Neil Druckmann, Ken Levine, Ed Boone, I will never forget. I think I've told this story before on the podcast. But... I went in, I was teaching video game history for a few semesters. Mm-hmm. I went into the class the first time I taught it, first day, and I said, uh, hey, you know, who knows the names of some game developers? And these are mostly first-year students, second-year students. And by a wide margin, that is shocking to me, they knew Ed Boone from Midway. Well, that's something. <laughs> Isn't that odd? It's I don't know what that means. I mean, means, do you think right? it's maybe do you think it's maybe knew. because of the the noob cybot thing? I don't I don't know. Right? I don't I I never figured it out. We went to it multiple times. We talked about it and I could never figure it out. <laughs> um I more people knew Ed Boone than they, they knew Miyamoto. I'll say that. Huh. Um who we think of as, you know, the kind of characteristic visible, you know, brand name um, uh, you know, game developer here. So I don't know. I don't know what to, you know, I don't think any of this like is a, a violent wrench in the middle of the argument here, but I do think that there are ways that American developers become visible and they are systemically different than the way that Japanese auteurs become visible. And I think that is very interesting and worth digging into. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then, I mean, with all that, you might be wondering, uh, what is uh, a, a ludophile? Well, a ludophile is a type of player um, in Patterson's kind of reckoning. Uh, and the ludophile uh, is uh, someone who is, uh, he, he calls their stance toward the, they are a kind of interpretive uh, figure, right? The ludophile is amorous toward the video game object, which is, uh, he's borrowing the term amorous from Bart when Bart is talking about uh, being a kind of amorous interpreter of a text. Um, the ludophile is someone who is going to look at a game and uh, not invest, as he says, a uh, quote, not invest authority into the author so much as call attention to the speculative ways of playing routed through, uh, in this case, ethnic authorship. Um, so uh, rather than being like, well, I am the ludophile is not going to look at the game and be like, well, here's what the game means. And here's what, I don't know, a developer said. And therefore that is what the game means. The ludophile is someone who has kind of uh, simultaneously um, an appreciation of a developer, um, but is also uh, going to allow that develop, like going to approach that developer as an auteur. So one example he actually pulls out here is um, Austin Walker talking about Suda 51. Uh, where, uh, you know, Suda is a, a, you know, the Japanese auteur developer, uh, has this big personality, has all of this kind of, uh, you know, narrative and branding attached to him. Um, and rather than letting that sort of determine what the game means, uh, uh, the, the particular piece from Walker that he quotes, which is like a, uh, two minute introduction, uh, from 
waypoint uh back when they were still doing youtube videos it's uh, uh austin talking about like suda's uh first game um whose name i don't remember but anyway uh like sun moon and rain yeah something, something like that. that and and austin is talking about how the game is like extremely weird and obtuse and, and unpleasant to play right he says it, it 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 hates you and i kind of love love that love it for that um flower sun flower and rain. sun rain right uh and so uh, a couple of things happen in that moment, right? Where Patterson is like, okay, so look, here's kind of that, that weird uh, thing happening again, where like the game produces affects that are both good and bad at the same time, right? The game makes me feel bad. And I like the game for that reason. <laughs> um, uh, mm-hmm. And then uh, that, because of the way that uh, Walker is talking about the game he he uh puts suda in kind of conversation with like david lynch right in terms of of tone and the ways that they experiment with the form of their uh distinct media uh and so like the the ludophile opens up space for aesthetic uh contemplation and interpretation um rather than you know sort of evaluation in terms of like is this good or bad representation is this like a good or bad game um that's actually another big thing that i don't think we've mentioned thus far is that uh, a cup at a couple points already patterson has said uh kind of these uh the concern within game studies and with and within sort of gaming circles more broadly over like is this good representation is this a good game is our games art are they good art or bad art uh is kind of a distraction from the the more interesting like uh, arena of possibility which is what kinds of feelings connections attractions are games allowing us to generate yeah, 100%. Um, and says, this is on page 93, says that the, the ludophiles, you know, approach, right? The ludophilic, quote, this ludophilic way of experiencing the game opens the gameplay up to queer and unthinkable forms of play, the sadistic, the perverse, the erotic, mm-hmm. right? And so ludophiles are not interested in, like, playing the top 15 games from every game console and, like, determining which are the best, although that, that certainly is part of the culture, I would say. Um, you know, for uh, for for the ludophile, you know, it is the uh, the game warts and all. I guess is you know kind of the best idiomatic mm-hmm. way of doing it, right? That there are displeasurable parts of the game. There there are parts that just make you feel bad or boring or terrible to sit through, and those things are in fact still important affects, and those can be pleasurable in the broad uh, you know perspective of it, right? That. The world is not separated into good feelings and bad feelings, right? It's separated into a thousand gradations of forms of pleasure and displeasure, and people navigate those in a billion different ways, right? This is, again, following from uh, the kind of queer studies backbone of this book of trying to navigate, you know, for example, um, uh, uh, Foucault's care of the self, Mm -hmm. right? That, you know, or the, you know, this ethic of the self of trying to, um, manipulate and think oneself in the world and to be attuned to new possible connections in the world as opposed to being, you know, a, a, an ideologically correct Maoist, right? Mm-hmm. Which is partially what what Foucault is at least socially responding to. Um, so, you know, so then, then uh, Patterson goes into this long reading of Scottish Duck 17's Let's Play of Shinmu 2. I love this part um, of this book. This is so cool. Like, yes, to, me too. to see a reading of, like, to see a game studies reading of a Let's Play 
is so cool. Yeah, same. It's great. I, I and I think there's a lot of affiliation here too between this and the Crisis chapter of uh, Colin Milburn's book that Mondo Nano that we just mm-hmm. did. Um, and I say that because th- these are people who are interested in looking at uh, the the perhaps um, not easily categorizable forms of pleasure and and forms of attachment that people have to games that do not fit into the way that we would normally think of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, I, I think this is like this is this chapter in a broad sense is highly valuable for that for um, perhaps breaking with some uh, modes of engagement that we normally have in game studies. Uh, to, to maybe get to a more kind of affective or or moment to moment thing, and the other thing is like you like you just said, right? People don't really close read let's plays very often, so this is a really cool methodological move of of reading someone else's emotions in real time and, and dealing through that. And there's a an interesting like kind of reading of an individual room in that game and all kinds of stuff. We don't have to get into it, but um, it it is to the extent that uh, you know Patterson calls it an erotic experience with the game. Not erotic in the way that we normally think about it is sexualized, but as in connective, uh, multivalent, um, um, intimate, mm-hmm. uh, you know, connection. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's also a, a reading of Mohammed Alavi's uh, map design in the Call of Duty games mm-hmm. um, that I don't have a lot to say on because I have not played these games. I have played these games, and I think it was really interesting reading. Um, I would have really liked to see... I, I think this reading is short. Uh, I mean, it's like four pages or something like that, and I think that this would be very interesting as a full chapter of the mm-hmm. book. Um, I, I think what's what's fascinating to me is exactly like we were saying earlier, that Patterson often gets to the point of... Um, engaging with scholars who are talking about the military-industrial complex, the military-entertainment complex, those things in their relationship to games, and then just simply says these things are insufficient for engaging with this actual thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I would be much very interested in reading a longer-form version of this argument that that I don't think necessarily happens here. These are fascinating readings, but um, I would like like a lot more Mm -hmm. of it, uh, personally. All right. Well, chapter three is called Ars Erotica, Utopia Aphrodisia Roleplay. This is not the very beginning of the chapter, but it's right here at the top. I I think it's maybe just useful to start this with reading a quote. This is on 114. Quote, playing a role is is thus characteristic of the power positions of sexual roleplay, a kink that includes weighing and negotiating consensual fantasies of domination and subjugation. Like, that's where we're starting Mm -hmm. in this this chapter, which is that... um, Ars Erotica here is emerging from um, Foucault, from Michel Foucault. Uh, Foucault um, contrasts two different modes, I think, in the early modern period, or or, or maybe a little bit after than that, the the onset of modernity, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, between uh, Ars Erotica, the, quite literally the 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 arts of the erotic, the erotic arts. Uh, that that's also my competing company to electronic arts, but <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, erotic arts and then scientia sexualis, which is literally the science of sex. And so, um, ours erotica is a much more ambiguous, um, flexible, non-deterministic um, mode of engaging with the world. Right, uh, you, uh, in line with erotics as they're being deployed in this book, scientia sexualis names the way that the state and institutions, for the most part. Uh, codify, speak about, orient, grid, um, sex and sexuality. Um, and if you're interested in that, you can read uh, uh, 
the history of sexuality, volume one, the birth of biopolitics, um, that, that argument gets laid out there. Um, but, but so the, the kind of move here is to say within role playing, um, as a mechanism, as a, as a way of engaging with games, uh, how is that involved in a broader system of erotics? And more specifically, how do you, how is playing a role in a game um, vis-a-vis power in particular, how is that like role playing mm-hmm. the, the sexual practice? Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of different ways that this moves in this chapter. Yeah. And sort of one, one key like format um, that Patterson outlines, but is also dedicated to critiquing is kind of the idea that um, essentially, right. The, the argument that role play uh, and specifically role-playing in games is in some form pedagogical right that that is that in fact uh touching on what i said about the last chapter right like what is a good game what is a bad game what do games do etc 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 against the argument that like it is worth having games and it is worth studying games because they teach us how to like games are a place where we practice uh skills that we're going to use in the real world um, this kind of argument, right, that that games train us to do things, uh, that form of role play. Patterson is going to highlight that, um, but also critique it and try to read against it. And I think actually a, a really great example here is the way that he reads Mass Effect, uh, where he he kind of adopts the position of the pedagogical role player thinker who is like, OK, well, if we take this idea and we look at Mass Effect, what is this role playing experience encouraging us to do? Um, well, it's encouraging us to like become the managers of our rowdy and inconsistent multicultural underlings in service of an imperial war machine. Mm hmm. Uh, it's really interesting. It's fascinating, in fact, not just interesting, fascinating to read this with the Mass Effect Legendary Edition coming mm-hmm. out, right? This kind of remaster, and to read, for example, Yusuf Cole's piece for Polygon the other day about the relationship between Mass Effect and policing, mm-hmm. right? You know, that being this kind of like galactic cop, because it's basically the same argument being made here, right? And obviously, these these like no one is ripping anyone off, right? I think it's just if you read this game and take what it's taken seriously, then you kind of land in this position. It's actually kind of fascinating that the opposite has it happened that lots of people haven't run into this. Um, but yeah, that you know that that um, if Mass Effect is instructive as a game, it's uh, in, uh, a game that instructs you that imperial values are great, um, that uh, that the state being able to determine who lives and dies is excellent, um, you know, and that's just the way that things need to be. That some people, uh, some some forms of life, um, are not capable of governance. Mm-hmm. And should be kind of taken on as underlings rather than as full, um, you know, capable uh, entities. Um, uh, the language here, I think this is in your notes, the quotation that gives you, um, this is a little bit later, but that it's a multicultural manager, mm-hmm. right, that that allows you to do that. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a great reading that, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, i got to put my cards on the table too, right? You know, I... 
I, I don't think I agree with Patterson. I don't think that there is nearly as uh, flexible a relationship here. Like, I read this, you know, because Patterson here is giving us this in order to say, this is what the fully instructive mode is, and then here's what it doesn't capture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is why this mode isn't entirely uh, useful enough. But, you know, like, I'm as paranoid as they come, as far as a reader is concerned. <laughs> you know, and we'll talk about that in, in just a minute. But... I think, yeah, this is this is right. Like this, this is the way of approaching Mass Effect. Like wholly, um, and whatever additional feelings that you have from it, or whatever additional kind of uh, erotic connections that happen, those are interesting. But you know, it, the the major instructive moves seem to vastly overwhelm those for me. Um, but he gets more complicated than that. Um, you know, around Rex. Do you, you want to talk about Rex here? Yeah, so uh, the the Rex um, from Mass Effect, well, Rex from Mass Effect, everyone knows him, uh, but for some reason, if you don't, uh, Rex is a party member in the Mass Effect games. He is a member of a species called the Krogan, who are basically um, big turtle Klingons, right? They're they're kind of a, a, a warrior race, right? Uh, and uh, they look like big turtle people. Um, Kind of like ankylosauruses as well. Anyway, uh, within the lore of the game, they were employed by uh, the kind of uh, space NATO or whatever you want to call <laughs> kind of the, the structure of galactic civilization in those in that game. Um, they mm-hmm. were employed as kind of a mercenary force against uh, another threat. Yeah, the uh, this, uh, tune into our next podcast. It's called Mass Effect Remembrances, uh-huh. where we just try to... Uh, planet by planet remember what happened in mass effect without revisiting it (laughs) oh man that's very funny considering mass effect was originally going to be what we were going to do instead of too much future um but anyway oh uh the the what happens in mass effect one is you get a party member rex who's one of these krogan warlords uh and as you might imagine most of the krogans are upset at, at having been mass sterilized um and so this yeah. is this is a, a political tension within the galaxy, and the plot of Mass Effect eventually takes you to a planet where you can discover that your enemy, the the antagonist of the game, in order to get the Krogans onto his side, essentially, has engineered a cure for the genophage. Um, and Rex, your party member, the guy who should be on your side, obviously has conflicted feelings about this, because we're supposed to be taking this guy down, but also he is willing to help my people in a way that, you know, the forces back at the Citadel extremely do not. Um, and so you get one of these big, uh, much talked about vaunted, like choice moments within mass effect where your shepherd, uh, gets to dictate kind of, you know, the, the, the history of the galaxy. Um, when Rex finds out about the cure, uh, can you talk him down from switching sides and betraying you? If you cannot do this, uh, you end up having to kill him, right? Your your shepherd will shoot him. Um, and uh, this will happen in ways where uh, basically your shepherd gets to, as, as a like, like a space cop, right? Kill him and be like, well, just like I had to do what was right for the galaxy, right? My response to Rex's kind of uh, fairly like pretty valid concerns, right? I get to universalize into kind of this uh, ethical statement about uh, how Rex just wasn't listening to reason, right? He he, mm-hmm. he couldn't 
he didn't realize that like, yeah, he could like we, we, we all we all think the genophage was a bad idea, but this isn't the way to fix it, man. We can't fix it by by, you know, shacking up with Saren and he wouldn't listen to reason. So I had to shoot him. Um, and that's kind of the the well in within where Patterson, I think, makes his hay right is in kind of the disappointment that the player feels when they are unable to talk Rex back over to your side, which you can do, but it requires a lot of like player investment up front, right? You have to be talking mm-hmm. with Rex a lot uh, earlier on in the game. You have to be doing quests for him and that sort of thing, right? You build up that player relationship. Um, but in the same mode, right, like what ends up happening there is that that implies like, well, if you make friends with people, they're much easier to manipulate at key moments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it also requires the player to kind of uh, step into this imperial like imaginary mode, right? Of, mm-hmm. There is no other way of going. You can you can never ally with the enemy. Right. Right. You can't be like, oh, yeah, maybe this is a good idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like maybe maybe what what happened here is so bad that it needs to be. Um, you know, require a radical rearticulation of like the plan for the galaxy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's impossible, right? You know, so you you are forced within this kind of. I'm not quite sure he's using the keyword here necessarily, but you're forced within the perspective of open world empire, right? Mm-hmm. Of seeing all the possible options, but the options are bracketed by kind of you know liberal and neoliberal logics of you know safety, property, good governance, quote unquote. Uh, the the state backed market, all the, all of those things, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's a really interesting kind of m- moment. I think what's fascinating here, right, and and something that that is important to keep through the rest of the book is that uh, Patterson does a really interesting job of like kind of bouncing back and forth between affordances here, right? Like sometimes it's about the choice, sometimes it's about the language, sometimes it's about the kind of philosophical bracketing around all of those things that that do it. And he's never really calling any of those out in the method, right? It's never like, here's where we're talking about the mechanics, Mm -hmm. right? That that never gets neatly split out precisely because, right, erotics don't work that way. Mm -hmm. It's not like you're like, uh, well, all right, here we go. Here's uh, my my uh, uh, dialogue choice uh, erotic relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Or my communicatory capacity. Oh, here we are. Mm-hmm. It's never clean cut like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it, uh, there is no strict formalism um, that allows you to get to the complexity of erotics. Now, I'm on the other side of that. I'm not necessarily sure. I'm a pretty strict formalist, I think, in a lot of different ways. And I think that we come to, weirdly enough, similar conclusions just through radically different um uh you know methods here i think you can get here a lot of different ways but the i think it's interesting if you're reading this book and you want to check it out to be attentive to the kind of choices that get made about how to read these games through erotics because i think it's a different way than other ways that game studies are doing it Mm -hmm. right um and it's precisely because patterson doesn't want to get trapped in um here is the right way to read or you know here's the right political way to be here's the right uh racialized way to be here is the acceptable mode right you have to be open to a much wider range of possibilities yeah and so against kind of the the pedagogical or instructive mode of of role playing uh he looks to you know how how can we conceive of role play as sort of about the pleasure of choice itself um mm-hmm. in, in a way right and and to demonstrate this he he transcribes a uh, uh an erotic role play chat that he has not not fully right but um that he has on like a a furry uh 
like channel or something like that. He he like initiates conversate like a role play with a character who I think is named like Princess Luna or something. It's like a vaguely like My Little Pony kind of thing. Perky um, Pat? Perky Pat returns? Yeah, I was gonna say it's the return of Perky <laughs> Pat in a very different uh, This is one of the <laughs> So <laughs> He's having this uh, a conversation and basically it starts out with them kind of like, uh, you know, uh, trying to figure out the scope and limits of their scene. Right. Like it is it is explicitly erotic role play. So what is this scene? What are we doing? What are we interested in? And it's sort of talking about like not, not talking about, but it, a, attempting to show us, you know, what does it look like um, when role play rather than being about like educating me about being a good uh, member of galactic society and a neoliberal subject and all this stuff. What if it's about like communicating with someone else and figuring out like where another person is coming from or like where they're trying to position me. Right. So. And not being yourself. Yes. I, I, Patterson spends a lot of time here talking about how role play is just as much about the connection between you and another person as it is about creating a secondary persona or even just a dissociated persona from yourself that has just different qualities than you do, right? That is not bound to the material body or your social performance in other places. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, cites Gita Jackson here mm-hmm. um, a, a, about role-playing as Rihanna in mm-hmm. every game, right? You know, there's this kind of like distal form of the self, this kind of um, uh, pro- you know, proxy or prophylactic version of the self mm-hmm. in some ways mm-hmm. um, that steps in between uh, you and the thing. The, the the pleasure of role play is just as much about inhabiting a different person than yourself as it is about uh, exactly as you're saying that connection with other human beings. But but sorry, go ahead. Right, right, right. So like with this um, sort of furry role player, uh, like he is not sort of foregrounding his own uh like desires for this scene like he is specifically coming into this like basically in the service role right he's like what is he's like trying to figure out what is this other person into and sort of responding dynamically and so for instance like he is uh intentionally presenting himself as genderless right that's sort of like mm-hmm. the the character or role he's assumed and um uh he's you know just talks about all of this and then oh god i gotta read it um so then finally uh like after the the what appears to be some sort of anthropomorphic pony is like well i'm going to uh like basically she she orders him to give her a lap dance or i mean Mm -hmm. they i guess I, i don't know if we get pronouns um but voice was dripping uh, with playful charisma. Uh, and then the the furry says, but don't you think about touching me? I'm an exo breeder. I can pregnate you with just my skin. And then Patterson writes in role play. There's an ecstatic moment when the lunacy of the content meets the purity of the form. When the imagination of the mixed cornucopia universe shocks with its boundless frontier. I'm an exo breeder. <laughs> Um, the, uh, important to note here too that Patterson is a novelist, and you can see that sometimes. Yeah, right? like there's an aesthetic pleasure here mm-hmm. that I think is is very associated with, uh, you know, uh, the kind of writerly form. Uh, is oh, you know, sometimes I have to explain video games to you, Michael, and sometimes mm-hmm. you have to explain the internet to me. So is this a common, um, uh, I guess, fetish? The exo breeder of. I'm not going to say common. I haven't encountered it a lot, but it's also something that I see. And it's like, I'm not surprised by this, right? This idea of like, I'm going to like my, my, you know, character is someone who impregnates like purely through touch. Right. And, and this is exactly, it's such a good illustration of a lot of the stuff that Patterson is trying to get at where it's like, 
sort of normal logics of just about anything do not encapsulate what the hell is happening here right the yeah. the 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 pure like boundlessness of the human erotic imagination <laughs> in terms of like what we can think up in term in, in in for these situations um there is something here that goes uh beyond uh you know the the utility of the pedagogical role of role play uh it's just sort of like purely like possibility connection like weird other ways of being and existing other ways of thinking about a body and how bodies can work and interact with each other right the ways that bodies might be rendered permeable or imagined as permeable um so on and so mm -hmm. forth yeah the it, you know it really puts into context right like you know so when you read some truly like out there statements right you know like william s burroughs saying that language was a virus that came from space and infected human beings with thought that that's nothing compared to the exo reader mm -hmm. and like the imaginary you need to do that and and just to be clear like we we are uh talking about this and it, it's interesting to us we're no way like kink shaming or making light of the thing like it, it, but it truly is. It, it is um, indicative of, as you're saying, right, the the boundlessness is the right word, right, of the way that a human being can think the erotic. Yes, right? exactly. And it's, and it's illustrative of what Patterson's going for here, right, that the way that human beings generate connections, if you were trying to put that within a very uh, strict binarism of, like, good and bad connections, you might be making a reading mistake of the human being, mm -hmm. right? Like, we're just way bigger than that um, as far as what's going on. And, and there might be reasons for doing that or whatever, right? But, but I think that, you know, if, if you're tightly committed to that kind of perspective, worth reading the book and trying to, you know, to, to kind of uh, see what's going on on the, the other end of the thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, precisely because, you know, Patterson is saying here that, that uh, his role-playing kind of character and the way that he role-plays kind of across these things is kind of uh, genderless, but also kind of deracinated in some mm -hmm. ways, right? This this kind of transparent... Um, uh, well, transparent is not the right word, but um, uh, not not programmable in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. um, um, uh, not indetermined by the social, um, you know, fully, maybe, I guess, not transparent, but opaque, right? Mm -hmm. Not easily readable by by the world around mm -hmm. um there's some some really interesting reading here of of aphrodisia that's kind of in the middle of this there's some more kind of language of reading here if any of this sounds interesting you just read the chapter there's a lot going on here mm -hmm. um you want to talk about the pause here really quick uh the pause is uh an interesting addition to this book because patterson eventually basically comes out and says you know the past three chapters, the arguments there have been a little too paranoid, and you'll recall that uh, paranoid is kind of the opposite of the erotic reading, right? Paranoid is the symptomatic reading, the demystifying reading. Um, it's exactly kind of the the reading that he just did of Mass Effect, right? Where uh, Mass Effect seems like you're just having fun space adventures, but actually it's training you to be a cop and and uh, to, yeah. to think about the world and... You know, the, the argument he makes is that humans in the Mass Effect universe are positioned with relation to all other species in the galaxy as uh, like white men have imagined themselves in relation to all other types of people on this planet throughout history. Right. As kind of like the one person who can step forward and put everything in order and uh, be the ultimate sort of mediator and arbitrator of value. 
Um, mm-hmm. So that's a paranoid reading. Uh, it's a correct reading, but it's paranoid because it is, you know, looking for like the thing outside the text that's uh, trying to trying to work on you or get at you. And Patterson mm-hmm. says, all of these previous chapters have been pretty paranoid, uh, but now we're going to do what he calls a hard reset, and the next three chapters are going to be more straightforwardly erotic. I, you know, I'm just a paranoid reader. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, I, I'm holding it down for the critical tr- tradition. I don't think that means we can get to like objective truth, but I do think there are better ways of approaching the world than other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that critique can help get us there, and I think paranoid reading helps. Um, uh, you know, as I've said before. Uh, just like Philip K. Dick said, it's not paranoia if they really have to get you. <laughs> and, and it's not paranoia if Mass Effect really does train you to be a cop. Yeah. Um, yeah. And know, I mean, so. and I don't think paranoia, like I am also a paranoid reader, and I don't think paranoia necessarily means that I think that I know the whole conspiracy, right? I just know parts of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Chapter four. So I, I say all that to say, I think that our readings here will be a little bit more... Um, glossy here of these last three chapters just because they are much more engaged in close reading the games which we are not going to reproduce here and they're less kind of schematic and theoretical Mm -hmm. yeah so chapter four is uh posture plunge dread vulnerability uh and this uh turns back to some of the the queer theorists that have you know been in the background of this argument um specifically to sedgwick and her work on texture and sort of uh it's kind of a in some ways if you're if you're a literary studies person right a kind of uh um predecessor of sort of like not surface reading which isn't to say like shallow reading but sort of like looking at uh like the surfaces of things rather than doing the paranoid move of trying to find the thing behind the text right looking at the surface of the text uh and how does that work on your reading experience? And here, uh, Patterson is pulling that into conversation, or not really pulling into the conversation so much as trying to take that uh, and look at how our bodies are oriented toward things like game controllers. And how do our bodies move when we are sitting and playing different types of games, right? Uh, like, I mean, just the, the, the you know, big example is he talks about the, the infamous video game Night Trap. Um, uh, Night Trap, a very different sort of uh, orientation, however, because uh, rather than, like, people getting really interesting, bizarre attachments to, like, animatronics haunted animatronics in an in an evil chuck e cheese uh you are watching like young women in a sorority house uh because there is some sort of like vampire (laughs) alien force uh i can't remember what what they're called I think, uh, yeah, sure. They're vampires. Yeah. I know that's in there. They're, they're like weird sex vampires that are going to like show up in these girls' rooms and like kill them unless these girls are being monitored by your care. Like you take on the position of like some sort of like cop or something who is like watching all of these security feeds of young uh, women in their uh, uh, rooms. And of course, the game was super controversial when it came out because of the content, right? It's it's clearly like salacious. It's it's almost like exploitation cinema in that way. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the the sort of like, you know, Patterson gets into the weirdness where how like. On the one hand, like the the game narratively is presenting or it, it positions you as someone who is watching to protect 
right, against the predatory force. But the reaction to the game, like the, the people who say that this game is evil or, or bad for public morality or whatever, um, are understanding the player's position as the position of the enemies in the game, right? As the vampires who are just there to kind of like take their pleasure from the the, the images of these girls or, or from viewing them or whatever. Uh, and what Patterson says is like, what this ignores, right, is that the actual experience of the game is like, you, you can't just sit there and look at these girls, right? You can't just like, you know, surveil them and, and, you know, fulfill all your voyeuristic fantasies because if you get too caught up looking at one girl, like doing her routine, right? Like, you know, going to the bathroom or whatever, I don't know. Um, if you're doing that, if you're like playing this salaciously or in, with kind of a pornographic view, the girls are going to start dying because in the other rooms, like these vampires are teleporting in and killing them. So actually you're just constantly like bouncing around. Uh, and, and he, I think I, I, this may have been like my, in, my interpretation or um, it might've been a thing that he says, uh, but basically, right. It, it's kind of like the, the game is, is uh, constantly delaying that gratification, right? It presents you with the situation, sort of the obvious erotics of the situation. And then the mechanics of it keep you kind of like bouncing around uh, and unable to actually fulfill the erotic promise. Um, mm -hmm. So that's all to say, uh, this eventually gets into uh, like survival horror games and sort of uh, like the different postures that people uh, assume with respect to the games that they are playing. He calls the posture of Night Trap um, masturbatory, right? The idea of the person like of you kind of like hunched over these screens watching uh, in, in uh, you know, your hands kind of on the keyboard or what have you. Um, but then when we talk about uh, the postures in, say, Alien Isolation, which is kind of the other key text here, uh, he talks about kind of the dread posture, um, sort of the mm -hmm. which he understands as kind of anticipatory, right? With survival horror, we know that we're in for a bad time. And so our bodies kind of uh, before the fact adopt postures that prepare us for jumping up and shouting right when the monster jumps out and kills you or for um you know throwing your game your your like controller across the room um when something scares you right we we know what we are in for and our bodies kind of anticipate and prepare us for the reactions that we want to have from the game and these are all like posture here is meant literally mm -hmm. uh, so this is on 161 um this is kind of a linkage between texture it, it it's it's making the move between Sedgwick and this like concept of posture here, right? Mm -hmm. So this is on 161. Texture occurs between the game as narrative slash ludological text and the game's material slash texture, where the smoothness of the keyboard and the gamepad's glossy resistance to its own history of production reveals a calculated forgetting of the material, its history, and one's own body. So Patterson is saying on one hand, the the kind of form factor of the game controller or the computer or whatever and its software and hardware interfaces that those allow you to uh, forget where they come from mm -hmm. right you know you're not looking at like a like a hunk of raw coltan in front of you right that would mark where it emerged from in you know an open pit mine mm -hmm. um, you you were looking at this kind of like clean glossy uh, object 
I, I got I always got to hold it down for Karl Marx, but <laughs> a uh, this is exactly how Marx gets to the commodity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it would be fascinating to you know read those first cap- couple chapters of Capital and then read this section of Patterson and kind of make those be in conversation with other, one another because I think you could come to some really interesting conclusions about how commodity culture, in a broad sense, produces games culture. But anyway. Mm-hmm. But but it's the but Patterson's saying that there's a, that kind of double move, right? On one hand, the game uh, apparatus makes you forget its origination. On the other hand, it makes you forget your own body, right? You, the thing uh, that you are using to interact with it, because the the whole apparatus is interested in forgetting of. Um, uh, uh, like origination points, mm-hmm. right? So when you meet the game kind of phenomenologically, this is not what Patterson is saying, but this is my kind of uh, gloss on this or my interpretation. When you meet the game, there's a double kind of erasure of history. Um, you know, one on your side of the body and the other on the side of the of the commodity. And what Patterson's trying to do throughout this chapter, right, is use the concept of posture as a way of getting back some of the body. And importantly, does not want to use immersion to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of uh, critiques uh, Janet Murray here um, and kind of immersion logic because it implies that there's a kind of depth and that you then emerge out of. And he says that's not what's happening. In fact, what, what's happening when you're playing the game is you are put in particular positions of anticipation, uh, you know, plunge and dread are the kind of two main ones here where you are ready for a thing to happen to you. You are in the position of having that thing happen to you and you're negotiating the conditions under which it happens. And some of those, some in the case of dread, for example, that's almost entirely on the part of the console, right? Scaring you or whatever Uh, on the uh, plunge side. That seems to be mostly on the side of you, of you being ready and willing to dive in. And you can hear the language of erotics here too. And you can feel some of the resonances with role play as well. Right. Mm -hmm an openness, a posture, a position. Um, at some point, maybe not in this chapter, but uh, Patterson likens this kind of feeling to uh, the opening of the cruise. Um, you know, th- this idea of being open to things that might be happening or indeterminate here. Um, and so that's that's kind of what's going on in this chapter, I think, broadly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's kind of it, right? There, it, it ends with kind of a close reading of Alien Isolation and sort of talks about... Um, you know, the ways that that game uh, renders the player, uh, I guess, uniquely vulnerable, actually, is what I will say, right? Like, that game sort of goes harder for disempowering the player and making their experience miserable than is than is typical. It is sort of famous for that. Um, and he sort of talks through, like, you know, what, what does that mean? How does that work with the fact that, you know, you're playing... Um, uh, this woman character, uh, how does this fit in with sort of the the biomechanical, like, you know, Gigarian uh, sexuality of the alien itself, but then also these characters in the game called the Working Joes who are uh, robots, right? They're androids, um, and they look like just bald white men who, when they attack you, uh, remain utterly calm and, as he sort of points out, kind of adopt the language of domestic abusers, right? Like saying, oh, you're being hysterical as they're choking you out. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of looking at the ways that that... Uh, that therefore playing Alien Isolation, right, puts you in the position of, makes you assume the posture of... Uh, someone who is going to be like the target of this type of violence. Uh, some interesting stuff going on here around uh, the sexual resonances of Alien. Mm-hmm. 
um, but not the racial ones. Um, that's in the notes. If you're, if you're a uh, notes subscriber, you can see some links I put in the notes there. That's a good reason to go to patreon.com slash range touch and uh, support us at $3 a month or more. And uh, you can get access to our notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have way, obviously way more notes than what we talk about, but that's a, a thing that's a benefit of our Patreon. Michael, what about chapter five? Uh, chapter five is called Loop, Violence, Pleasure, Far Cry. And uh, we have kind of a tradition on this show that we'll, we'll mark chapters that are like, what's maybe like the chapter that you want to, if, if you're teaching a class or something and you want to excerpt a chapter, um, this is my pick for that. Uh, Loop is kind of the one where I think, not only because it's dealing explicitly with open world games, um, specifically what we're going to be talking about here is the Far Cry series, um, so it it kind of, you know, buys the title in a really big way, um, but also just the the fascinating way that this chapter ends up reading the concept of the gameplay loop is is really in, mm-hmm. it's cool. Yeah, uh, you know, kind of starts with um, the logic of what a gameplay loop is um, and really leans heavily on um some halo developers for talking about this right you have a three second loop that turns into a 30 second loop that turns into a three minute loop and you put a number of those together and as long as all of those loops um they're they're built out of the same kind of mechanical principles but they always produce novelty then you will have a game that is engaging from beginning to end um so it's really this atomic you know thinking of um of how video games operate and quite literally i mean that's what what patterson says he says that um the game loop isn't is the atom of the universe of you know game design mm-hmm. um and uh yeah kind of, kind of works through that and gives us a, a logic of what a game loop is and then kind of expands that out and is trying to talk about how do um the way it enters into far cry is that eventually this chapter turns into a reading of um how does a game loop transition over time to incorporate and encompass different things? How does it change? How does it remain kind of imperial in its logic, right? You know, Mm -hmm. Far Cry famously is a game genre in which you, up until I guess the most recent one, where you go to foreign lands and murder people, Mm -hmm. right? You know, there are these kind of like um, vacation uh, murder sim games, right? Like Uh, astonishingly, astonishingly isometric with like the post-Vietnam 1980s action movie in so many ways, right? Like, yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and they even did that, right? They made Blood Dragon, which is the this weird 1980s kind of like send up of their own thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the same way that we got all these weird neon coded send ups of 1980s action films in the 2000s, right? So all these all these different things are happening. And uh, Patterson says, you know, part of what's interesting about Far Cry is that the game loop is kind of flat and universal, meaning that like. Um, I, I think you put it in your notes, right? That, uh, yeah, hang gliding and killing locals have the same amount of weight is the way that you put it in your in your notes, right? That the uh, the actions that one does in these kinds of games are all kind of just like flat affect, but they have the same modes of engagement to them, right? There's still three minutes of pleasure, and that does something to, um, you know, th- that allows us to track these games as the franchise moves in really interesting ways. Now, uh, you know, for me, what's interesting is that I think the very similar thing is happening in the Assassin's Creed games. I'm hopefully, I, I can't promise 100%, but I'm hopefully working on a longer form piece on Assassin's Creed. People on the show will find out about it as I know more about it. But um, but this is really helpful for me for thinking about that kind of um, 
uh, Ubisoft game, right? A, 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 a game franchises that are uh, happening over and over again and are slightly changing moment to or game to game in, in interesting ways. Um, and I, I would say that this chapter two also has the most straight up readings of a video game that exist in this entire book. I mean, this is, you know, close readings of the Far Cry games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, just to, you know, unpack a little bit more of uh, what's going on in this chapter in terms of argument. Um, you already pointed out in my notes, right, that, that Patterson says that hang gliding and killing locals have the same amount of weight in terms of Far Cry, right? Like you you are playing Far Cry and uh, it is it is literally just like I'm going to either I'm going to jump off this mountain and go hang gliding or I'm going to shoot a whole bunch of people down here. Um, like there's not really... Uh, they're just as easy to do for you as the player, right? Uh, those are both affordances that the game makes for you. And uh, not the only affordances, obviously, because one of the things that these games sell themselves on as open world games is that you have this big map and you have all of these specific things, little things that you can do in it. And then the loops are built out of, uh, you know... Uh, following this marker onto your on your map to this particular location, clearing out that location, getting whatever loot you get from that location, reporting back to your quest giver. Uh, but maybe in the meantime, uh, as you're traveling, you you know hang glide or something, and you notice something new. You get kind of that emergent experience, and so that's how the loops build out on each other. Uh, but what Patterson is interested in is understanding these loops as what he calls uh, experimentations with power, right? What happens uh, if the player is empowered to do all of these things? Uh, what do they do? Or rather, like, that is our question as players, right? Like, when we play these games, uh, if I am playing a, a Grand Theft Auto game or a Far Cry game, I might, in fact, you know, just, like, open fire in, in, like, a crowded area. Not because, like, that is a thing I actually want to do as a person, right? Or because that's a fantasy that I hold, but, like, I want to see what the game does. I want to see what mm-hmm. happens if I exert myself in the game world in this way. Um and that's something that's, uh, I think, very interesting, again, about Patterson's kind of approach here, uh, where, you know, he wants to bracket or, or set aside, right, these questions of like, well, are, the, are these murder simulators? What are the media effects? Uh, and he wants us to focus on the fact that at a fundamental level, when we are playing a game, we are kind of just like fiddling with it to see what it does. Like, we don't even ourselves attach a lot of like moral weight or like philosophical weight to the things that we're doing. We're trying to figure out what the game does, what its systems are. Um, so that I think is, is, is really interesting. Uh, and then he also uh, gets in here to like, th- there's a couple of things that happen. He, he talks about the ludology and narratology debates. Right. So that's uh, uh, relevant here in the sense that, uh, well, it's it's not an open world game, but it's the Nathan Drake problem of like ludo narrative dissonance of, you know, in in in, in between cutscenes, Nathan Drake is like murdering a hundred guys. And then he has his like weird romancing the stone cutscene uh, with with his love interest uh, where everything's bright and chipper and, and pretty lighthearted. And then he goes back to just like, again, murdering hundreds of people. Um, 
And one of the things that uh, Patterson wants to sort of point out is that when we get into like ludology and narratology between like, you know, system design and then how narratives exist um, as a consequence of or on top of those systems, um, by pulling apart uh, style and content, we are missing something about games uh, that is, again, to call back to an earlier point, um, in, in a way that games are almost more fundamental to or, or more similar to pornography Um where there is a kind of willful dispensation with certain conventions of like realism or psychology or depth, right? It's it's almost totally about like inhabiting a role from moment to moment. Um, so he says that, uh, you know, the the melding of uh, ludology and narratology uh, can be seen sort of similarly in like pornography where it is about like, the performance of a role, right? Porn like pornography is not just like, here is a people, here is a video of people having sex, right? It's always framed in a certain way. The people in this video are certain types of people. They have certain types of relationships with one another, right? Uh, it matters when in pornography, what the participants race is. Uh, if it's, you know, two men, if it's a woman, what are their, you know, are they um, transgender? Are all of these things, uh, are important sort of uh, foundational points for the pornographic scene. Um, and they're sort of crucial to the the erotic sensation. Um, and his sort of point then is that video games are kind of like those moments of like temporary identification with certain roles, certain ideas, certain positions, and the sensations that they inspire, right? Um, so very similarly, he then says, flow... Uh, tries to separate style and content by saying that, like, it doesn't matter what you're doing in a game at all, as long as you've got a good flow loop and the player likes the flow loop. And you could see this even when we uh, talked about flow in the episode on it, uh, where Chixmahai, uh absolutely is, he's saying stuff like, you know, here's a person working an awful awful job in a factory just the most miserable job on earth but they actually have a great time uh because they've managed to uh sort of vacate all of the content and now they have just the pure form of i don't know soldering on the radio transistors or whatever that particular example that he used was um mm -hmm. and so you can see you know sort of up front like how this way of separating style and content gets you into these weird places where like uh, I, I don't know. I think it's actually worth thinking about like your labor conditions and your awful job, right? Rather than trying to be like, well, how can I make this better for me? Uh, you know, like how do even the worst positions that we find ourselves in end up having kind of affordances for some sort of enjoyment or pleasure? Uh, and the real insidious thing about that, uh, for Patterson and for this argument then is that like, this is how the open world game, uh, sort of acclimates us to, to the logic of empire, right? Uh, mm -hmm. here is a world, um, there are forces at work in the world. The world is essentially kind of being controlled by these forces. Uh, and we as individuals are drifting or looping in between like what, what is in our, what is it within our power to do and what are the things that we are playing off of? Uh, and you know, within that, where can we construct our own goals? And then how do those goals then kind of influence like what, consequences or what choices we are willing to countenance versus which ones we aren't.
Mm-hmm. And then kind of walks through the different ways that Far Cry does that. Yeah, I think we get like uh, three different Far Cry readings, like three different Far Cry games get read here. We, he reads two, three and four. Mm-hmm. No, uh, the first one, too. Oh. I mean, it only gets like a short paragraph to kind of set up the stakes. But yeah, I, I think all of them that were up and up other than Far Cry 5, which I think came out as this book was being finished. Mm-hmm. So but uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 they all kind of show up here. But yeah, you know, kind of illustrating the the grander point that you just made Mm -hmm. right so the the other way to put this then is like let's say i'm playing far cry and i have a particular goal either it's been given to me by a quest or it's something that i've decided right i want to uh get to this place or i want to do this particular thing with this character and i look at the tool set that the game has given me and i set about doing it i accomplish my goal and in the process you know maybe i blow some people up Maybe like some sort of like horrible, like, you know, just gunfight breaks out and and lots of people get caught up in it. Um, Maybe I catch, you know, a a big plane on fire or like a plane of grass and I'm I'm, all these all the wildlife is dying or something. Uh, It doesn't really matter, though, in the end, because I accomplished my goal. Right. The other stuff just kind of it happened sort of incidentally to what I was actually doing. Uh, And then he lines this kind of attitude of gameplay up against like the ways that specifically, I think, in his case, uh, uh, like the United States thinks about its own uh, uh, military engagements abroad. Right. Where, uh, you know. The, the Middle East may be really destabilized and there may be lots of bad things happening there, but that's all incidental to the thing that really brought us there, which is, you know, getting rid of these regimes that uh, were our enemies and that were actually having a very bad influence on that region, uh, you know, sort of meeting the goal of displacing or displacing these heads of state or changing these regimes or whatever uh, is the primary thing. All of the other stuff is just it, it, we can deal with it, right? It's whatever. <laughs> Yeah, within the kind of logic of liberal management. Right. Right. It's it's unintended. Like the side effects were unintended uh, and therefore the, the goals are still noble. Mm-hmm. Um, chapter six. Uh, this chapter almost feels like the beginning of a different book project. I think so, too. Yeah. And Patterson says as much. Yeah. Right. Says, look, you know, like we're going to shift gears radically here. Um because well the reason it fits in the book right is that it's still the open world empire Mm -hmm. right and this is just another way outside of games predominantly right that that this is being instantiated although games do show up kind of in the back half of it um but it's mostly like here's how this happens right this is called emotion trans-pacific virtual blur um emotion here is being um borrowed from um juliana i think it's juliana I, i think there's like an additional i in there somewhere but uh joe bruno is the last name mm-hmm. bruno's atlas of emotion which is actually recently re uh republished by verso a uh, fascinating book about kind of the relationship between emotion is that in aesthetics if you're interested in that in the broad sense uh worth worth checking out for sure really happy to see it show up here in this book but uh yeah this was actually kind of the chapter we were talking about uh, at the beginning of the episode that kind of deals with the specificities of the field of kind of trans-specific studies if you're interested in that uh in a broad way and then patterson kind of uh relays the asiatic as this kind of uh determining force or or as this kind of imaginary 
uh, relays that into that system. So if you're interested in that, this is where you want to go for it. Um, I will say that, that so I'm, I'm kind of reading this chapter as it goes and kind of like kind of following it, but you know, I'm not in this field, so I'm not hundred percent sure what's happening. But then we get to this thing about Brigham Young University's Polynesian Cultural Center. Yeah. And that blew my mind. Yeah, that no. this exists. <laughs> so Brigham, Brigham Young, um, which is not, not, Okay. The the Polynesian Cultural Center is a theme park, basically, mm-hmm. about Polynesia broadly, mm-hmm. uh, in on the island of Oahu mm-hmm. in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. It is operated and owned by Brigham Young University. Yeah, Brigham Young University is not. Its main campus is not located in Hawaii, correct? Uh, that was my understanding. I was just as surprised as you. I was like, "Wait a minute, what?" <laughs> is it, I did? Did you Google it? Did yeah. you figure that? I out? mean, Brigham Young. I'm pretty sure is in Utah. So, so this is like a satellite yeah, campus. Like that. That it was my assumption, right? Is that they have some sort of um, Hawaiian satellite campus, and with yeah. this satellite campus, they run. A, a Polynesian cultural center. Yeah, Brigham Young University's main campus is uh, yeah. Provo, Utah. So that's yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. So so it's even so it's not. I, I mean, this is perhaps not shocking, but it is a explicit uh, like. I you know I don't I don't even know the appropriate word for it. Uh, it is a vestige of this uh you know religious oriented institution that exists in the middle of hawaii that is representing pacific culture back to not hawaiians Mm -hmm. right but to tourists of hawaii yes oh what a weird thing yeah uh and i mean in the 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 connection here to the previous chapter is that uh patterson sort of argues that like the far cry games uh ask you to take on a position of, of militourism, right? You are both a tourist mm-hmm. in these locations and that you're hang gliding and having fun and scaling mountains and so on. And then you're also a military presence in that you are like mowing people down, setting fires, uh, taking out enemy encampments and, and things of that nature. Uh, and so here, uh, then, I mean, one of the interesting things that happens at the end of this chapter is when he starts talking about like Google Earth VR and how when you, you know, take on the kind of like virtual tourist position of like being in in uh you know like being on the shore of of one of the uh, islands of hawaii and then as you're looking around you know you're seeing everything and then there's just this like weird gray haze on the horizon because it turns out that's a that's an american like military installation and cannot be shown so it's like censored out of your vr view and he talks about how like this puts you in it's like this fascinating thing where like the the space that you are in right the 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 Polynesian the Polynesian or the Trans-Pacific or or um whatever term we want to use here is like always already in the aftermath of war um and in sort of like the the legacy of you know like these sort of colonial conflicts and and, and imperial presences and uh exactly sort of the the same thing that this polynesian cultural center that byu is running um sort of represents right like uh the fact that this this specific type of thing exists for tourists and is being run by like the like a, a, the university of the LDS church, right? It's, there's so many things that get bundled up in here culturally. 
uh, that are fascinating to consider. Yeah, and what kind of gets uh, mobilized here right afterward is uh, this concept of the virtual other. Mm -hmm. Um, So so the Asiatic, right, this kind of concept that's been moving through gets kind of figured, right? You know, there is a specific figuration of it here of this this otherization or this this um i mean quite literally virtual other right so an other that is not quite here not quite actualized um you know on 250 this is in your notes but quote taken as imagined but not unreal recognizable but not identifiable always obfuscated and obscured um and so you know otherization takes on this kind of form of um uh a, something that uh, oh, it's hard to the the language of it is difficult here a a figure that is not quite emergent in the world and yet predicted in how it will look feel uh be right but still obfuscated mm-hmm. right still not entirely coherent still not entirely done so purely predictive i mean virtual mm-hmm. virtual in in its kind of technical sense yeah um, and this contrasts and, with uh like the I'm not going to say normal, but like another way of understanding like how the other operates is that like the other is the the thing that you have to pin down like very, very specifically in order to generate your own identity. Right. The other has to be yeah. the things that I am not in order for me to come into uh, view as like a, a coherent individual or what have you. Um so this is like the argument of, you know, Orientalism, like from Said, right? Uh, that Orientalism is a way for uh, saying the other, like the cultural other, right? The, the, the East, everyone in the East or like the cultures of the East, the people of the East are like this. Uh, whereas by contrast, uh, the people of the West or the people of Europe or what have you are this other thing. Um, And what the Asiatic is doing for Patterson is that that is a way of recognizing that there are others and like trying to sort of find the contours of the other, but not pin the other down of uh, sort of like interfacing with the other as something that is both known and semi obscured. Mm -hmm. Yeah, paradoxically, Mm -hmm. even. Uh, so yeah, and that kind of goes into the the Google VR um, stuff that you were talking about, and also kind of a reading of Civ Five's um, map mechanics. Um, Patterson really makes an interesting argument here that I I've also been thinking about civilization in a couple different ways. I wrote about civilization in my book, um, and, and I've written about civilization recently in a book chapter that's going to come out. But so Patterson says it's on two sixty one quote the historical simulation of global empire is only made possible by the disembodied player who sees the world not as a god but as a military technology of a single civilization: the drone, the air balloon, the fighter jet, the satellite image. Um, so quite literally thinking about. Um, how you float around the world and look at it in in a Civ game, and that being kind of uh, analogous to the kind of visuality that the open world empire has, right? The drone vision. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this to me, and my kind of you know friction here I have with it a little bit, is that that Patterson makes this kind of slippage between how, and I, I wrote about this in my notes, um, but how the player sees the world and how the player ascertains knowledge about the world. Mm-hmm. And there's something really interesting. I mean, I, this is, I don't think I agree with this, but I think it's really interesting and really helps me think about civilization because I think Patterson is 100% correct about how Civ sees the world. But, but 
uh, Pedersen makes this kind of maneuver to say that that's also how the player knows the world as not a god, but as a uh, kind of state, right, mm-hmm. or as a kind of imperial vision, which is partially, which is true vi- vision-wise, but that's not how the player knows the world, right? Mm-hmm. Because there are all kinds of things that are hidden from vision, that are invisible, that are not seeable by the satellite image, that are nevertheless knowable in civilization. And so that kind of difference between knowability and visibility, I think it's fascinating. And I don't think anyone's really written about that in civilization, the kind of um, how we tend to flatten those things, but how they are not the same thing in those games. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think it's a really interesting argument that, that has really made me think about my own writing on civilization. Ho- hopefully I can edit some of that stuff and, and get this in here, but it might be too late. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, there's always the next thing. Anything else here in Chapter 6? Uh, no, not really. Uh, there's a coda. There's like a two-page coda to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that books need conclusions. Well, this isn't a conclusion. Full stop. It's a coda. I, I know, but I, I think it fits in the same because it's kind of summing up the thing. It's kind of being like, hey, here's the thrust of the argument. And also, you know, uh, here's like one additional uh, thing to it. I just think books should stop <laughs> at this point in my life. If you're a book and you're listening, stop. Just quit. Just quit, book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But yeah, there's so there's a, a, a short coda um, that that reiterates the argument about erotics here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, just essentially that uh, you know the looking to erotics uh, can allow us to thwart kind of the the more pedagogical or or sort of linear and progressive notions of like what games can be, and we can start looking for uh, not only weirder connections, right? What are kind of like the weirder ways that we can imagine ourselves within through games. Um, but as in the case of Far Cry, uh, what are the ways that we might be entrained, like, where are the pleasure, like, how are games entraining us to, uh, imperial pleasures in, in ways that are sort of more subtle or sort of more backhanded, right? How does the drift of the person bumping around Far Cry Island sort of, uh, in some ways get us to identify with the experience of the United States, like, you know, driving around the Middle East and just wrecking stuff. Mm-hmm. Sounds pretty paranoid to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, okay, cool. Well, that, that's open world empire. Um, yeah, that's the book. I think it's interesting. I think there is a provocative book in, in useful and um, powerful ways. I think it's a book that is worth engaging with for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, what's our next book? Our next book is going to be a, another kind of uh, canonical work in the field. I guess it's canonical within game studies, um, It's but it's also sort of not within game studies. Uh, it is going to be The Language of New Media by Lev Manovich. Yeah, canonical, I would say, within media studies— mm-hmm. And really important for the early wave of game studies yes. to like distinguish itself mm-hmm. against, right? Mm-hmm. But I think probably has a lot for us to learn about, really, you know. So this is a, one of those weird episodes where it's kind of a game studies book, kind of not a game studies book. But I think we'll find, it's been a minute since I've, I've read uh, any parts of the language and new media, but I think what we're going to find is that Lev Manovich is addressing some of the fundamental claims in game studies. Mm-hmm. And uh, from a different angle, which will be, I think, interesting and helpful. So if you want to read that book, we'll be uh, that's our next episode. Um, 
You can go to patreon.com slash range touch in order to support the show. As I said earlier in the episode, you can, you could also uh, check out any of our other shows such as just King things where we read uh, the works of Stephen King in publication order uh, too much future where we uh, play through the fallout games and talk about them. That's coming back. Uh, that will be uh, out right after this episode. This, this episode will come out and then the following Thursday will be our first episode on new Vegas. So if you're into fallout, new Vegas, um, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Well, I mean, maybe not surprised, but um, you'll be happy to know there's an episode coming out. How about that? Uh, you can also check out Mages and Murder Dads, where Danny and I are currently playing through and talking about at length uh, Disco Elysium. If you're interested in that, all of that is supported by our Patreon. Um, we are currently on the road to a target amount of money. We, we are trying to get to $4,500 a month in support. We're a little under $1,000 uh, away from that goal uh, over on Patreon. When we hit, the minute that we hit 4500 we will be recording a podcast of three-plus-hour-long episodes, probably, <laughs> on Homestuck. Don't make promises you can't keep, Cameron. I, ju- I know I, it'll be impossible for you not to talk about it. <laughs> and that's not, I, I don't mean that critically or in any way, anyway, but you've been keeping this in. <laughs> you know what I mean? In much the like way, you, you've got it. In much the way I have my affections for, you know, the various uh, uh, strains of desire that one can find online, uh, you have your affection for my infinite desire for Homestuck. Yeah, I just, I know there's going to be like a 45 minute story about like, forum drama oh yeah that will right and i'm just prepared for it i'm ready to do Mm -hmm. it i'm happy to do it i don't know anything about homestuck michael knows a lot about homestuck maybe too much about homestuck (laughs) um uh you know i don't know i don't know what that is but i'm gonna find out hopefully but that all is going to come down to your support the power is in your hands that's my new catchphrase about the patreon the power is in your hands Mm -hmm. uh to do it so if you enjoy the show and you've been thinking i don't know if i need to support them though um you know i don't know this is your time this is the time for you to stand up and say hey i want them to check out homestuck i want cameron to be unhappy i want michael to be experiencing jouissance and to define it Mm -hmm. and i probably will and i mean and if you like this podcast like game studies terms are going to come up there because uh for various reasons of, of composition and form, uh, games or Homestuck weirdly ends up interfacing with a lot of talk about, like, I don't know, emergent narrative in games and in the ways that games get thought about as objects. So you can look forward to that as well. Michael, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter.com at Warren is dead. You go to Twitter.com slash range to touch to figure out everything that we are up to. And we will see you again in a month when we read Lev Manovich's The Language of New Media. The social is predicated on its exclusions.